Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. Give it a pause for effect. People are like, oh, that's right. What is he about to say? What is he about to say? Chan is like, Thomas oh my God, and who? Yeah. <laughs> How are you doing this morning? Uh, pretty good. I got some sleep. You did get some sleep. I did not get any sleep. I got some sleep because you convinced me to watch the new Batman. <laughs> I tried it. Put me right to bed. You got to watch Tenet. You got to watch Tenet. I promise you. I had to get Shane. I was like, dude, you got to watch Tenet. You got to watch Tenet. As Shane is similar to me on the way, like, like this kind of um, esoteric or this kind of um, philosophical stuff. Loves that stuff. So I was like, dude, you got to watch it. It's a Nolan genius film. He's a good director. Batman. I, like, look, I like Batman, but it's not, it's not the old Dark Knight no, Batman. No, no. It's not that. But there are certain scenes of it that I just really like. The darkness <laughs> thing or that walk thing. Like, he has a weird walk yeah, in Batman. Have you noticed that? I see that. Well, it's like this very slow, plodding walk. No. I think of, it was overly dramatic. It the was. parts that I did watch, my husband said, because he stayed awake for it. Yeah. That it was, it was all right. Yeah. It was all right. It was all right. Right. It wasn't a knock out the park. It wasn't that. But I thought Robert Pattinson was okay. You but said you whole, fully reject him. I totally reject him. <laughs> reject him. I totally reject emo Batman. Wow. Now, keep in mind, he was only doing it for two years at the time when this came out. So it wasn't like an old grizzled Batman that has been doing this for 10 years. He's t- it wasn't that. It's he just started. Yeah, he's but he's in still it. like emo hipster Batman. And I was like, ugh. That feeling it. That's not, no, that's not Bruce Wayne. The weirdness to me was like how emotional he was. Like, he would run into fights. Like, when he went into the bar, he's just, like, just like fighting people. Just like, dude, you're by yourself. I get you're Batman. But is your ego to that extent where you're like, yes. I can just take 50 guys by myself if I need to take 50 that guys? That would be believable if he was all hulked up. And, oh, he wasn't is, hulked up. This is Robert Pattinson. <laughs> he wasn't hulked up. I think he's, like, he's taller than me, but he's about my size. Yeah, he's not hulking. I think I could wear his clothes. Yeah, he's not hulking. He's so, not, he's yeah. not a hulking Batman. Sorry. I mean, I feel you. I, I think, for me, I liked the mood, that dark dark mood like I everything was, was dark much. everything was raining all the over time the and it's over it the top dramatic i love it uh the walking where he has that weird very slow walk anywhere he's going I know. and especially when he's coming out the darkness much. oh i love that i don't think he had the swagger yeah when the bat suit came off and he was supposed to be bruce wayne he looked he was a weird bruce he, bruce right wayne. he didn't have the swagger to be bruce wayne yeah what's his name did and did it much better Who, ben affleck that Ben Affleck. Oh, God, no. The first one. I can't think of his name. I can see his face, but I can't think of his name. He was the one that played in Not Dark Knight. Not Michael oh. Keaton. It was um, a Dark Knight one with Christopher Nolan. Uh, he had three series. Gosh, what's his name? I can't think of his name. I but can't think of the, He's British also, which was funny. Christian Bale. Thank that's you. That's it. Christian Bale. That's it. Christian Bale's Batman was phenomenal. He was good. good. Yeah. And so it's like, for me, that sets a standard for Batman. Yeah, it's two British Batmen. Really? Who was the other one? Christian Bale. Christian Bale's British. He's British? Yeah. Okay. I didn't know he was British. British so. And they, Do we not have the right American men? Batman? Right, American <laughs> right, Batman. American Batman. Right. And then it's like that deep voice that um, Christian Bale. They, they were saying he kept saying deeper, deeper. He's like, oh, Batman, oh, Batman. Like it was, it was like this. They kept oh, deeper, deeper. I'm in. So I'm in a more chipper mood today, despite yeah. yesterday's all all the crazy news yesterday. Because I got some sleep, 
thanks to watching Batman. So, That's so sad. Yeah, I know, but you know, hey. Did I, you at least like the darkness scene? Where he's like, he's talking in the beginning, kind of like the Rorschach thing, like, I'm the in the night and this is a little no, morning. No, I thought the stuff. narration was too long. You didn't even thought, like that? No, there was like hardly anything. I'll give the set designers mad props. The sets were beautiful. <laughs> the costumes were great. Um, but apart from that, I mean, the fight coordination, I guess, but like Pattinson. Batman didn't care about getting the, shot. The, the theme. I thought that was weird. Like the whole, it, was, it was just all too methodical and too dragged out. Yeah. It wasn't, like, fast enough. Well, Batman is a detective, basically. Sort of. And so in this one, you saw him being a detective. And sometimes that's him just looking at clues. Batman stands there. Cops all around him. Even though he's a vigilante, cops all around him. And he's, like, looking at clues. That didn't make any sense to me. So, you know. I would say one thing for the audience before we go to headlines. If you get an opportunity to watch it, the very first scene, I just want to get your feedback on that first scene. The darkness one to me is the best scene in the movie. And maybe that's sad because it happens in like the first five or ten minutes. But it's where the people are beating up a guy. In the subway. In the subway. It is pitch, pitch black. And you just hear like footsteps. And then it's very slowly. It takes like maybe a minute for him to just emerge from the darkness. It like was Batman too is the darkness. Long. It was so cold. Was After so cold. like 10 minutes of narration of being <laughs> Batman, I was like, okay, enough, Robert Pattinson. I Get out there. Yeah. I mean, a great line, but yeah, a little over the top. <laughs> Go back to being a vampire. She sent me a text saying, I completely reject emo Batman. I was like, better enough, fair enough. That's but at least it. you checked it out. At least you checked I it tried, out. I tried. I tried. I tried to stay awake. So, but I, I will say thank you because it gave me some Z's. It helped you get some sleep. <laughs> it's funny. I was up all night trying to sleep and couldn't sleep. But try Tenet. I swear to God, you would love Tenet. Oh, Jafar, you're not. I'm you're not, not. I'm not feeling your movie stuff, right? <laughs> you're not. You're not faring well with these movie recommendations. <laughs> but it did help me get some sleep. So there's that. So now we can get to headlines. All right. Let's start off domestically here. The with a laptop from hell. The Delaware computer repairman who first came across Hunter Biden's infamous laptop from hell has now filed a multi-billion, or excuse me, that would be a lot of money, a multi-million dollar defamation suit against, get this, Democratic representative from California, Adam Schiff, CNN, The Daily Beast, Politico, and that's all according to the New York Post, who first reported the story, and everybody jumped on it, calling it Russian disinformation. His name is John Paul Mac Isaac. Unclear if Mac has anything to do with this being a Mac laptop and he's a computer repairman. Uh, But John Paul Mac came into legal possession of that laptop after U.S. President Joe Biden's son dropped it off at his store for repairs back in April of 2019 and then just never, never came back to get it. The former store owner claimed that for months after he alerted U.S. federal officials to the incriminating discovery, he was hounded by big tech, the media, and locals in President Biden's home state of Delaware. Then the CIA has issued detailed instructions to social media outlets on how informants can ensure the security of data transfers and not get caught the CIA recommends using the Tor internet browser in particular, which allows you access to the network anonymously, as well as using a VPN. (laughs) Yeah. The CIA is trying to give tips on how to avoid the CIA. Is that what that's They're they're telling 
They're telling their informants, their snitches, uh-huh. to... This is a way to snitch where you don't get caught. Right. Snitching. So you don't... Yeah, I guess so whoever you're snitching on doesn't follow, track you. Yeah. Or, so use Tor and a VPN. Thanks, CIA. Good look it up. Yeah, but you're, you're telling them like the most basic... <laughs> right. There's really, there's no other way to secure your informants. But, all right, sure. <laughs> Additionally, the agency requests not to use a home or office computer for this purpose. Quote, concerned Russians are trying to engage the CIA and we wanted to provide a way to safely contact us. That's according to a CIA official to the Washington Post. The instructions require informants to state their full name, the country they are reporting from, their official position, and to specify what access they have to, quote, secrets for U.S. intelligence. All this information is then thoroughly examined and verified. That's what they say. Before it gets disseminated. And in international news, Employers Trade Union Ports of Sweden is suing the Port Workers Union over its blockade of Russia-linked goods and ships, which they deem illegal. Because of the blockade imposed back on the 28th of March, members of the Port Workers Union no longer deal with Russian ships, Russian goods, and ships on their way to or from Russia. According to the Dockers Union, the blockade is designed to show sympathy for and solidarity with Ukraine. The employers, however, argue that the industrial action is illegal and have now taken the issue to court. And the Russian foreign ministry has issued a rebuttal to the Israeli foreign minister Yair Lapid over his attacks on Sergei Lavrov, educating the country's authorities on the problem of neo-Nazism and anti-Semitism in contemporary Ukraine. Quote, We took note of the anti-historical statements of Israeli foreign minister Yair Lapid, which largely explained the course of the current Israeli government in supporting the neo-Nazi regime in Kiev. That's according to the foreign ministry in Russia. And it's titled, On Anti-Semitism. Very apt. Then the Chinese aircraft carrier Liaoning has led a battle group into the Western Pacific Ocean for, quote, open sea combat training. That's according to senior captain Gao Shisheng, the spokesperson for the People's Liberation Army Navy, known as PLAN. Gao said... The drills are a routine training exercise within the annual work plan of plan and and designated to improve the aircraft carrier battle group's ability to fulfill its missions. He reiterated that the drills comply with relevant international law, practice, and not targeting any party. Then in tech news, researchers at Carnegie Mellon University have managed to modify a virtual reality headset So it allows the person wearing it to experience a sensation of touch and feeling around their mouths. Using just the virtual reality headset? Yeah. How's it doing that? I I don't know. That's, I mean, a sense of feeling in your mouth? That's kind of weird. Yeah. Unless it was something that was kind of um, messing around with neurons or affecting brain chemistry. It's just... I don't know how they do that. The, the team from the university's Future Interfaces group apparently managed to achieve this feat without adding, they say, with, and this is your world, tomorrow, without adding any hardware that actually makes contact 
with the wearer's face to the set. So I guess all these normal things that you and I are thinking of, like, okay, that maybe it's like they, you know, plug, you know, attach something to your cheek or they say no. Are they using some kind of electronic waves to stimulate brain stuff? They're saying thanks to an array of ultrasonic transducers Ah. attached to it, the modified headset is now capable of creating a sense of touch on one's lips. That makes sense. That actually makes sense. As well as their teeth and tongue if the wearer's mouth is open. That is is awesome. So think of it this way. I don't want to think of it. When you see something like the Star Trek holodeck, overplay it, right? The only thing you really need is the ability, everything that you experience, everything that you touch, everything that people are seeing, the people hearing here, are just electronic signals going to the brain. That's it. No more, no less. You could be a brain in a jar. You would not know it. Right. You would, don't, don't even need to be a brain in a jar. You just well, need to have reality, something that's giving. Exactly. In our, our physical reality, that's really all touch and feeling is. is, is Electronic signals go into right. the brain that interprets it as reality. Right. So if you can modify that, screw with that, tweak that, alter that, then you can kind of spoof various sensations going to the person. And so from their standpoint, if they're using some kind of electronic signals, they're basically right. screwing around with the way your brain is interpreting stuff where your brain believes, oh, somebody is touching my mouth. Right. You can alter any sensation at that point. And depending on how good you get, you can spoof reality itself. So I point. wonder if this has any impact on wearers who are potentially, you know, someone that's paraplegic. Yeah. Um, getting, you know, somebody that's had a stroke that has lost sensation in some of their face. The answer is probably... Not the stroke, mm. the paraplegic, probably. probably. Maybe somewhere down the line. There's but a lot know, of technology going on about that. Paints, yes. which is indicative of, okay, the leg is not there, but the sensation right. is. So if they had that capability, if you could craft a reality, they probably could walk in that reality. They probably can, all of those things. Super cool. It is very but, cool. <laughs> but to, to have sensation for this VR thing in your mouth? A little creepy. Why do you pick the mouth? mouth. Yeah. <laughs> Why do they pick the mouth first? That's you so dirty. You couldn't pick fingers? <laughs> yeah. Like, or feeling like you're kicking a ball or There's something? There's some perverted like, engineer that was right? like, we got to go with the mouth first. <laughs> got to do the mouth. Got to do the mouth. <laughs> that's, that's weird, but all right. There's a lot of, you know, sensory receptors in, in the mouth. Okay, fine. That's... Uh, let's move on to Earth science. The expansion of the universe first discovered back in 1998 to be speeding up, driven by dark energy, exerting repulsive pressure rather like the opposite of gravity could soon, they don't know that, could soon grind to a standstill. That's according to new research. So it trumps the old one, I guess. Get a scientist and ask them what is dark matter or what is dark energy. Right, we'll get two of them in a room and see what happens. Yeah. Uh, Furthermore, the universe could then begin to shrink, they say, prompting stars, galaxies, and planets to collide. Eventually, the cosmos could collapse upon itself in a big crunch. So instead of big bang, it's a big crunch. Um, That's what the study's revealing so far, but science is a living, breathing thing. It always changes and evolves. So it's we- one or the other. It either expands in this kind of infinite way where there's this kind of cosmic, you know, death of, of heat, energy, and all this stuff just kind of right. dissipates. and Or, or it contracts and smashes, I guess. Uh, the process could happen remarkably quickly, they say, with the universe ending its acceleration within the next just 65 million years. So don't worry about it just yet, folks. That's all. After that, within 100 million years, its leisurely contraction could result in the death of time, space, or even the rebirth, which would be a new Big Bang. That's All of those things are properties of our universe. Maybe I'll be alive as a brain in a jar. 
Well, you don't have to worry about it. The sun is going to expand and destroy. And destroy us anyway. System before. Yeah, That's fine. Before that happens. <laughs> so don't worry about it. We're- or according to AOC, we're going to die in the next 12 years anyway. So <laughs> right, right, matter. right. Uh, business News Americans are walking off their jobs in record numbers, in many cases choosing to quit rather than return to the office as employers and remote work policies being offered from the COVID-19 pandemic. An all-time high of 4.54 million people quit their jobs in March, edging out a record that was set last November and rising 23% from the year before. That's according to the U.S. uh, Labor Department. The number of job openings also set a new high at 11.5 million as employers struggled to fill vacant positions amid, you guessed it, surging labor costs. Yeah, you can't afford to even drive into work. If you don't live, yeah, if you don't live within a couple miles, you just literally, like, you got to weigh the differences. Like, people that moved far away out deep in the birds, and you got to drive into the city. If you're talking 40, 50 miles. It's painful. That's, I mean, gosh, at like five, six bucks a gallon. Not to mention parking. Yeah. Then the Russian ruble rose to its strongest position against the U.S. dollar uh, in over two years on Tuesday amid reports that Russia's dollar payments on two foreign bonds reached the creditors just before the deadline, averting a default. The exchange rate reached 66.43 rubles per dollar. That was at the end of Tuesday's foreign exchange trading. That's according to Bloomberg's data with Russian currency losing some of its gains later in the day. The Moscow exchange was closed on Tuesday due to an extended public holiday. Then this day in history, 1675, going way back, King Charles II of England commissions the Royal Observatory in Greenwich. 1904, the United States takes over the construction of the Panama Canal. 1953, Ernest Hemingway wins the Pulitzer Prize. In 1959, the Grammy first made its way onto the scene. And in 1994, Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat sign a peace accord to ensure Palestinian self-rule in Gaza and Jericho. And those are your headlines for this Wednesday, May 4th. You are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. All righty, let's do this. Let's take a break. We'll come back with the monologue. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host Manila Chan coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio and video, and slam your fist into that rumble button and share this video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. The Supreme Court has voted to strike down the landmark Roe v. Wade decision according to the initial draft opinion. Majority opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito circulated inside the court and obtained by Politico. The draft opinion is full-throated, unflinching repudiation of the 1973 decision with guarantees federal constitution protections of abortion and subsequent 1992 decision Planned Parenthood 
versus Casey that largely maintained the right. Quote, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start, Alito writes. And continued, we hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled, he writes in the document, labeled as the opinion of the court. Now this, of course, the destruction of Roe v. Wade, is considered existential to many liberals, many people in the country, and there was a collective freakout. Now let's be very clear, this is a preliminary opinion. And based on the preliminary opinion, those can change. I made the point about Obama in this case. Obamacare had been destroyed for a while. Initially, Judge Roberts didn't necessarily like this idea of killing the first black president's main achievement. I mean, for God's sake, it has his name, Obamacare. And because he was uncomfortable with that, and it was a conservative court that was doing it, he basically said, it's a tax. It's a tax. It's a tax. The government can tax. It's a tax. Now, Scalia hated this, and Scalia went after him over and over again to try to get him to change this back and basically kill Obamacare. He wouldn't do it, and so Obamacare became law under the idea that it was a tax and that the government has powers of taxing. Now, is that going to happen here? We have no idea. But as it looks, based on the preliminary opinion, and going along with that, it seems that they might have killed Roe v. Wade. You will get a collective fit of people waving their hands. They're going to be angry. They're going to be belligerent. They're going to be standing out with signs. And you're going to get Democratic leaders who are going to come out and saying, you should have voted for Hillary Clinton. How do you feel now? On top of that, you're going to get all of these people wagging their hands, wagging their fists, and being all sorts of hyperbolic in the language and everything else that something needs to change. Republicans hate women, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The reality of it is, though, behind the scenes, I would guarantee you that the Democratic Party, especially leadership, is saying, thank God for this Republican overreach. Thank you. Thank you. Good looking out, court. Because they know what I know and what the Republican leadership knows, who's probably at this point thinking, God, why did you have to do this now? Why did you do this now? Now, that flies in the face of what you're seeing people say and do, but it is the reality of events based on the incentives in this particular process. I was in a chess game in the World Open. And in that chess game, I am losing monstrously, horrifically. And in losing monstrously and horrifically, I would have lost the game in maybe 70 moves. It would have been a slow, plodding loss. I decided to sacrifice the knight. I sacrificed the knight not because I could foresee what was going to take place. I sacrificed it because all things been equal. If I didn't do it, I was going to lose in a slow, plodding, painful game. The catch is it destabilizes the position in a way that neither side can predict what is going to take place despite the fact that I'm down peace, which is a better circumstance for me considering I was going to lose anyway. The point that I'm making here is what the Supreme Court basically did was throw a wrench, sack a night, in a situation where if all things were left equal and as they were, the Democrats were going to lose fantastically. It would have been a, an abominable loss from the standpoint of the House and the Senate, not to mention the presidency with Joe Biden numbers and not having anybody else on the bench. If all things being equal, if they would have left the position as it was and we just went to the midterms, there would have been a historic wipeout of the Democratic Party. I know that. They know that. So the fact that Roe v. Wade gets nixed allows them something where they can say, look, we know we didn't do anything for you. We know we didn't do anything for you. However, however, you need Roe v. Wade, right? We'll be the guys who can protect Roe v. Wade. Put us in office, we'll pass a law to do Roe v. Wade. No, we didn't do anything for Roe v. Wade since 1970, even though we had the opportunity to do so, 
but trust us now. Meaning you give them a talking point where they can basically rally behind because they got nothing else accomplished in the time frame to which they were given in office. Despite these big ideas, hundreds of thousands of people died from COVID. Embarrassment from the standpoint of Afghanistan. Inflation going through the roof. Recession at 1.4 or 1.3%, whatever that number is. And on top of that, a foreign policy where they're giving billions of dollars that is causing ungodly levels of inflation, not just here, but in Europe, not to mention the foreign policy causing famine and other areas of the world. This has only been two or three months. This is only going to get worse. That's what's going on. And so now, in a situation where the Democrats were completely lost, they have a talking point. Doesn't mean that they'll be able to win. Like I said, the inflation thing could take over in a way where the public just doesn't care. And they are willing to basically still make Democrats lose. My point is, at the very least, it gives them a talking point. You get people like David Korn, who comes out, just checking in with all those folks who thought it wasn't important to vote for Hillary Clinton. How you doing now? And then you get Susan Collins. If this leaked draft is the final decision and the reporting is accurate, it will be completely inconsistent with what um, Gersh or Kavanaugh said in the hearings, in the meetings, in my office. Here's the point. Ideological actors should be believed to be ideological actors. Doesn't matter what they say in that situation. The rule is if they have something that they believe in and have something that they want to accomplish, they will try to accomplish those things. It doesn't matter. Second rule, if that person who is an ideological actor is trying to get from point A to point B and the only thing that's stopping them from getting from point A to point B is a lie, that fib will be uttered. Think of the situation of the Supreme Court. It doesn't matter if he tells you, yes, I am going to, I hate abortion, but I'm not going to do anything about it. I have a 12-inch penis. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You can say anything you want. At the end of the day, when he gets on that bench, he's going to be on that bench for the rest of his life. Not going to matter. So when Amy Coney Barrett got it, when Gersh got it, my thought was, they're going to nix abortion. This is something they strongly believed in. It doesn't matter what they were going to say. Here's the truth and the reality of it, though. You can't blame Republicans for this. This goes all the way back to 1973. And is it really up for the court to make law? I mean, keep in mind, they did this and regarded this as if it was a law. And Democrats left it vulnerable for a very specific reason for this reason right here. If you do something about it, you can no longer use that as an issue. Fact of the matter is the Democratic Party has abandoned most of the principles that basically got those people to agree with that party in the first place being a working class party. It is no longer that. And so what is the argument? Supreme Court. Hey, the Republicans are going to get rid of abortion at the very least. Don't you want the Supreme Court? We will protect the Supreme Court. We're the person, we're the group, we're the party that will protect the Supreme Court. It was used as a weapon, a threat, a sort of Damocles that can hang over the head of various people who understood that abortion was persistently and intentionally left vulnerable with the idea that you may not like us, but at the very least, we are the people who would keep Republicans from nixing Roe v. Wade. That was the entire reason that all the way back to the 70s, all the way during the Obama era, when he had those 60 votes majority in the Senate. And keep in mind, up to that point, you didn't need 60 votes to get everything done. They just didn't do it. They left it intentionally vulnerable. How long did you have a conservative court? And the only thing that was stopping Roe v. Wade from being nixed with that conservative court was just John Roberts' own ideology of not necessarily wanting to go that route, considering it settled law. It was always vulnerable. They used it as a weapon and as a threat. And keep in mind, for all of those people who were like, what about Hillary Clinton? Obama didn't even fight for his own Supreme Court pick. 
Merrick Garland, Merrick Milk Toast Garland was Obama's choice. Mitch McConnell entirely, I don't know if you can say the C word on this, but they basically ate his lunch. In which case, McConnell, biggest thing in his career, prevented Obama from getting that pick. Obama, instead of going to the mat for that pick, Hillary Clinton is going to win. And Hillary Clinton will make her, oh, Hillary Clinton didn't win. And at the point where she didn't win, McConnell didn't give him that pick. Trump got that pick. So you want me to vote for the testicleless president who wouldn't fight for his own pick, but you're going to come after me for this Hillary Clinton nonsense. Here's the rub. If the Democratic Party and the only thing that they can say is the Supreme Court, the reality of it is, if that's all they got, they should lose. There are times where you need to take a personal loss yourself on some level to get across that you're not willing to accept a particular situation. And from the standpoint of Democratic Party, votes are not perfunctory. Those things are transactions. I'm giving you this because I have an expectation that you're going to represent my interests. And if the only interest you can represent is the Supreme Court, that is not enough. That is not enough. From 1973 to now, there were opportunities that they could have used to fix this. They chose not to. This is a massive, massive failure for one of the issues that they left vulnerable played politics with it, and now this is going to go into a win column for the Republicans. If you are upset, if you're angry, make sure you direct that anger at the people who failed monstrously to protect your choice. Manila, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, we had a conversation yesterday about the kind of politics around it of, you know, Democrats are going to use this and so forth. But you have a lot of Democrats who are basically wagging their fingers now saying, you should have voted for Hillary Clinton. How do you feel about not voting for Hillary Clinton? Manila, should you have voted for Hillary Clinton in this in order to protect and prevent this particular moment from coming to fruition? No, I mean, you nailed it with President Obama kind of letting Mitch McConnell railroad him over Merrick Garland. He wanted to, you know, be this benevolent statesman and work through this and be like, all right, fine. Because like you said, they just assumed Hillary was going to win. I happen to be on the campaign trail following Clinton and Trump, split my time. Were you? Uh-huh. And I saw firsthand, I kept reporting back, back then to the Ed Schultz show, that the energy is with Trump. Yeah. And I said, he's going to win. Merrick Garland getting punted out by Mitch McConnell is, it's because they know. They knew, they knew Trump, they felt it, they, and nobody believed it. But I knew I was there. I watched, I watched these campaigns unfold before my very eyes. And the Trump was having mega rallies. Hillary Clinton couldn't fill a doghouse. That is absolutely true. Any place I went, it was, it was shameful. It was like not even a high school football game. Yeah. I've seen high school football games have more people at their rallies than Hillary Clinton. Trump, on the other hand, was like, he had a base. You would overflow the Staples Center. Yeah. And nobody believed it. The polls said otherwise. But polling data can be skewed. Think of who, you know, answers their, first of all, who has a landline? Right. Secondly, who answers their <laughs> right, landline? Right, right. Those are the people that answer the polls. So polling data is way off. And even though polling data now would suggest that the majority of Americans are pro-choice, I also think that polling data is off as well. Oh, I don't think that's off. I think that's, I don't I believe think that, that polling data is off. I don't buy that. I, this is one of those things where I think the American public all, 
look, I don't think people want people to get abortions willy-nilly, but I do think they want that stuff to be open and available. I just I think mean, that I, is the progress of a society. Right. I, I'm, I'm pro-choice by the way of, I don't Other think— people, yeah. I, I don't think the government should tell you what to do with your body. Full stop. Yeah. Don't care what it is. It's not the government's place. That's my stance. Full stop. But I think for a lot of people, they can agree that, a, that abortions and choice for women should, you know, abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. That I agree with. And rare. That I agree with. Um, so I think most people would agree with that. Yeah. With that portion. That but, I agree with. But there are some people on the fringes, obviously, that are like, no, woman's body, her choice, full stop on that. Right? Like, all the way to the date of birth. There are people, I mean, that's... Ugh, yeah. Right. There's something grisly about that. That's something very grisly about it, right? That's something very grisly about that. No, I, I agree with you on this. I do think it should be rare. I've, I've seen known people who, it's like three abortions. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why are you doing that? And so, I mean, you know, I get the, the distaste with it. Totally. But should it be available? Yes. Available? Yes. And yeah. safe for women? Thousand percent, yeah. Yes. They're... I mean, sure, should people make better, different choices? Agreed. Sure. Rape is going to happen. Incest is going to happen. The health of the mother. Matters. That matters. But I I get, you know, the the pro-life people are going to full stop in the other direction, which... I understand where they're coming from. I understand that. Austin was that way, right? So I get it. Um, Oh, was he? oh, Oh, yes. Oh, yes. To him, the woman's choice didn't matter. Yeah. Women's choice didn't matter. He didn't care about that part. Pro-life. He was was a Catholic. He was pro-life all the way. Wow. Yeah. So even if the mother's life was at risk, like she was. No, that part, I don't know. That part, I don't know. But but I know he was fully, full choice all the way through. This notion of, you know, it's a woman's choice. It's a woman's body. None 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 of that that matters to him. Just the baby's life. It's this typical conservative argument of, we care about the baby until the baby is born. In which case, you're all on your own. Um, But let's do this. We have Mark. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And let's get to our guests. We have Mark Sloboda. Mark Sloboda is an international relations and security analyst. I call him the voice of reason and truth. Mark, welcome to the show, my man. How are you doing this morning? Jamal, Manila, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Fault Lines. Absolutely. It's always an honor and a pleasure to have you, Mark. There is, um, I want to start here. During a television interview on Monday, Alexei Danilov, the head of Ukraine's national security and defense, was asked about international security assurances for Kiev and possible peace with Russia. Danilov replied, quote, with Russia, we can only sign an act of capitulation. Sooner they do it, the better it will be for the country. They continue on us. We have our own views. Because pers- they asked them, wait, is Zelensky OK with this? Like, is Zelensky on board for this? The president knows my stance on this issue. He said he added that he believes Zelensky will not violate Ukraine's constitution, which guarantees the country's territorial integrity and aspirations. Here's another one. Um, Zelensky's advisor, Alexei Erishevich, um, brought up those remarks. And he asked whether he was authorized to basically say it. He said, quote, he doesn't just make statements like that. He's an official of the highest rank. It is completely new reality. That is astonishing. 
And even Zelensky comes out and says something to the effect of, well, Russia's going to have to pay reparations after we, meaning Ukraine, wins this war. Zelensky has entirely lost his mind and is basically at war with reality. I've been looking at the reports of this stuff. What is going on here? Is just peace negotiations at this point just off the table? Mark, he's, he's identifying, Zelensky, that is, is identifying as a winner. Right, right, right. It's 2022. Right. You can identify as whatever you want, right. Jamal. Right. He's Come got on, a binary position in the war. That's right. There's no binary. There's no winners and losers here. Yeah. It's just my, people my getting killed. My personal pronoun is yeah. victor, right? <laughs> in fact, he's a victor. What is your take on this? It seems like all sorts of peace negotiations out the window. Even what they were offering before when they were in Turkey, that seems to be off the table. What happened? They're losing. And yet, this. What's going on? Yeah, okay. So uh, we've heard from multiple uh, Ukrainian officials at this point that uh, peace negotiations are over. They, they have no interest in peace negotiations. Uh, we heard this from the foreign minister, uh, Kaleba, last week. We've heard from a presidential advisor. We've heard from others that, um, that the time for peace negotiations with Russia is over. And, uh, you know, they, they believe they have become convinced uh, or they're just at this point of desperation uh, where uh, they have no interest in anything but victory, and they will take the country down in flames uh, in order to protect the regime. Um, no matter how many conscripts uh, drafted in, 16-year-olds, 60-year-olds, doesn't make any difference. Uh, with the amount of Western arms and money that are flooding the country. I mean, Joe Biden just declared 33 billion U.S. taxpayer dollars be sent to Ukraine. Uh, first of all, you got to consider that half of that off the top is just going to be gone, the corruption. <laughs> this is normally the case. with 50% off the top. Yeah, right, right. right. <laughs> Kolomoisky's going to pocket a big chunk of that, right? You know, uh, but I mean, that's like double the size of the Department of the Interior, right? I mean, the budget, that's that's like half the size of the U.S. State Department's budget per year. I mean, it's, uh, of course, an insane amount of money, but that insane amount of money is still not going to change things. Because, I mean, the Ukrainian military is in extremely bad shape. It wasn't in great shape beforehand. It is a conscript military. Large numbers of its people don't want to fight. Those that do, uh, you know, the, uh, the neo-Nazis, yeah, they're putting uh, guns at the back of, of those who won't um, and keeping them in the fight, um, you know, restricting access to information and, and, and so forth. But, um, I, I see this more as a sign of, of desperation than anything else. They have to continue this illusion or the whole house of cards could fall apart. Agreed. And I was reading reports. There's an article that came out in AFP. It's a French, um, news agency, and they were basically going into exhausted Ukrainian soldiers returned from the front. And you're talking about how many of these conscripts, these are not like hardened soldiers that are in their 20s. These men are old. Like they're getting people who are like two or three times the age of some of the other people that are going there. And then I was reading another story from Insider that has this line. It says, that afternoon, Newman pulled Tobias, Kevin, and a few others to the side. He whispered urgently that he had er overheard some of the Ukrainian officers talking 
Behind their backs, the officer were referring to recruits like them, those without combat training but the will to fight, as cannon fodder and mine meat, and they'd be used to open the battlefield to test the enemy's capabilities before risking more valuable, better trained troops. Meaning those people that are going there, they're like, all right, these people want to kill Russians. Okay, put them out there as cannon fodder. We're going to save our good troops from other fighting. Are just all the dads and grandpas out there. Just put them out there. Isn't that amazing? I mean, they're, they're, like, there seems to be a disconnect between these guys are losing badly, and their people are getting killed, their soldiers are getting beat. Russia is basically taking villages versus what they're saying. It's very weird. It, it, it shouldn't come as any surprise. I mean, Zelensky opened up the prisons, releasing violent prisoners as long as they would say they're going to fight Russians. He's handing guns out to citizens en masse. He's, in, in, you know, giving them instructions on how to use Molotov cocktails, all of which erases the distinction between civilian and soldier and has the civilians give up their you know, however flimsy, right, in any type of conflict situation. Yeah, we, we should we should note, Mark, that according to the Geneva Convention, that as soon as you take up arms to fight, you are no longer a civilian. Your designation, your safety net, you become a combatant. Exactly. And, and that's what they're willing to do. So, it, I mean, it shouldn't come in, in as any surprise the the way they regard uh, their own conscripts uh, that have been forced into this conflict. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the type of, of trench uh, uh, warfare right now that is ongoing in Donbass, uh, very heavy on artillery uh, fires, uh, as we call them, is exactly the, you know, the sort that is, is able to keep these troops in isolation uh, you know, from from information from others, um, and and you know, make it very hard uh, for uh, Ukrainian armed forces, you know, the regular soldiers, to um, decide that uh, this combat isn't for them. Further to the the rules of the Geneva Convention, uh, the Russian Defense Ministry and Sergei Shoigu warned that Moscow will see any Western transports carrying weapons into Ukraine as legitimate targets. So I don't know who would be driving those. I mean, once you hit the border at Poland, for example, I mean, does a Ukrainian guy hop in and drive it the rest of the way? Or, I mean, how how is that going to work? Right now, my understanding is that, uh, you know, whatever is being shipped by, by truck, I, again, the majority of shipping is taking place by train. Uh, uh, simply because of, uh, you know, that's the easier way and there are fuel concerns. Uh, but though that is being shipped by trucks, uh, it is Ukrainians that are taking over uh, the vehicles uh, while still in Poland uh, and bringing it across the border, thus, uh, you know, alleviating any concern about, uh, you know, NATO military being present and being uh, a potential target at the least uh, within Ukraine. Uh, so, I mean, that that is one concern. But right now, uh, Russia, again, very early in the conflict, Russia was trying to avoid as much infrastructure damage as possible. In fact, a report out by the uh, uh, SIPA, uh, the Council of European Policy Analysis, no, no friend to Russia, uh, needless to say, a report out last week said that the Russian military is still operating under peacetime constraints, particularly when it comes to infrastructure. But right now, Russia has started bombing 
um, elect, um, railroad uh, electrical substations, right, that power the railroads because the majority the of the trains on the railroads are powered by um, electricity, right? Uh, most of them are not diesel. So most of those uh, trains uh, or Lvov, you know, Western Ukraine, they, they are having these substations be pounded at the moment to prevent the transit of Western goods further into Ukraine. You know what I find really rich, guys, is that here stateside, the media keeps talking about they're using, I mean, they're throwing everything at the wall, right, in terms of propaganda to see whatever sticks. One of those things is calling this this new fight a genocide, right? This is coming from the U.S. government who, by based on history, we can we can easily look back at places like Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Vietnam, Laos, who wasn't ever in a war with the U.S. officially. But the U.S. goes in there and bombs the hell out of everything indiscriminately, indiscriminately firing, shooting, firebombing, napalming, agent oranging, everything in their path for the U.S. government to now call this a genocide. A genocide how? How do you mean? That's not the definition of a genocide. Then you have somebody who is a military veteran like Adam Kinzinger saying, hey, let's change the AUMF, guys, and let's pre-sign, let's secure the U.S. place in going into World War III because the new AUMF will say if Russia were to use chemical or biological weapons in Ukraine, then, hey, boys, it's World War III. War is on. He wants to secure, to ensure that America will go to war on something as flimsy as a false flag, which we've seen happen many times, especially in Donbass. What do you think of all of that, Mark? Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, the, the charges of genocide are, are completely absurd propaganda. I mean, we're, we're in that wartime propaganda where, you know, the enemy is always Hitler. Uh, every military action is a genocide. Um, uh, every, uh, you know, military operation is like, well, like U.S. shock and awe. Uh, in Iraq. And, and, and of course, uh, the reality couldn't be further from the truth. It's important to remember that there are Ukrainians fighting on both sides. Exactly. It's civil war. There are tens of thousands of East Ukrainians uh, fighting, you know, to liberate their part of the country from a U.S.-backed butch regime that seized power violently and unconstitutionally as they see it in 2014. So, uh, you know, so much for, for genocide, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. Because here, they don't talk about it like that, no. meaning they don't talk about it in the context of a civil war. They talk about it as a Russian invasion. They ignore. It's so racist. They basically ignore the fact that they're Russian-speaking Ukrainians. And that's the way they talk about it. They leave this kind of huge hole in any kind of analysis of what's taking place. I wouldn't even call it analysis. I want to jump for the moment to Hungary, which I found to be astonishing. So Hungary gets a lot of his oil imports from Russia. And so when the EU is like, okay, we're going to ban oil now. We're going to ban oil. And we're going to do it by 2022, at the end of 2022. Now, I think this is farcical. I don't necessarily know how they're going to do it. I don't even think they know how they're going to do it. It's an ideological position that doesn't necessarily have the capabilities to fulfill, but whatever. Nevertheless, Hungary doesn't want to go along with this, in which case they started to attack Hungary. And all of this stuff started coming out about Hungary wanting territory from Ukraine and all of this other stuff. What is going on with this? I mean, they just basically turned on the country because they wouldn't fall in 
to something that was going to hurt their own constituent members? Yeah, I mean, we've long seen this. I mean, uh, Hungary and Poland for years have been the the bastard children of Europe, <laughs> right? I mean, they've they've both both countries have been threatened with sanctions by the technocrats that run the EU for not following in line on liberal judges and 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 the like. Right? So it should come as uh, uh, you know, no surprise when it comes to something like war, something like, uh, you know, uh, falling in step on foreign policy of, of uh, sanctions uh, to have defectors from those ranks. You know, there there is going to be punishment. There is going to be recrimination. Ukraine is threatening them. Like at the end of this, you know, we're going to remember that you guys <laughs> didn't support us in this particular fashion. It's just very strange. It's like you haven't even finished one war yet. And you're threatening another member of another country. Um, there's also this other weird thing that's taking place where they are arresting, and I guess it's that weird. It makes all the sense in the world since they're in the war, but they're arresting dissenters in Ukraine. Like they've gotten to the point and they were showing this on the AP. And I kept thinking to myself, if this is what they're doing on camera, oh my God, what are they doing off camera? They had guards that would go to people's house who wrote like Twitter posts and something like that. And they would say, you're saying bad things about Ukrainian military. And the guy's like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Okay, we got to take him away. And he's like, oh, we're just following the law, man. We're just following the law. Is this, I mean, is this basically has been what's taken place? They've been basically disappearing people who show any level of dissent for what is taking place in the war? Being picked up, being arrested for dissent is like the least. Um, in in Hare Sun, uh, just a, a week ago, a uh, well-known uh, blogger, uh, Valery uh, Kulishov, uh, who uh, is, you know, was anti-Medan for, uh, you know, a long time. Uh, he was just shot and killed, right, <laughs> um, uh, on the morning of April 26. And this is in Kherson. Um, uh, and, and this is happening all over the place. I mean, the, the Kiev regime is killing its own officials on broad daylight on the streets of Kiev. Uh, one of their first uh, uh, peace negotiators, Denise Karif, a former deputy, uh, deputy director of their own intelligence unit, gunned down in the streets. They videotaped that one. None of this is being reported on the Western press. It is being reported in the Ukrainian press, and they're not trying to hide it. In fact, they're quite proud of it. So um, uh, when it comes to the status of, of ordinary citizens who are speaking out against this, uh, you know, particularly, of course, in eastern Ukraine, then being detained is is the least of your concerns right now. We've heard from Eastern Ukrainian uh, politicians, uh, you know, speaking. They said the goal right now is survival. You need to survive this so that when, you know, the regime falls or at least, you know, the territory you're in falls out of its hands, that you are there, uh, you know, to to be able to, you know, provide, um, uh, you know, uh, leadership uh, because uh, right now, uh, the SBU, the far right battalions, they act with complete, complete impunity. And, and there is no questions that dissenters at this point are being eliminated. The head of um, the uh, Nikolaev the, of the, for the Kiev regime, the governor there, he officially announced that the Ukrainian military has formed a special um, unit to seek out and execute collaborators. I mean, they're not, they're not hiding this at all. It's quite out in the open. It's not being reported in the Western press, uh, but this is the type of regime it is. And 
the regime matters over all else. Um, and, you know, despite the fact that the Russian military intervention has said that they are not there to fight the Ukrainian people, uh, that they're there to fight the regime uh, that seized power, and not even necessarily to remove it, but to get it to agree to certain uh, political demands. But um, the, that, that regime is willing to throw any and everyone in uh, you know, its path uh, that it can to sustain its own existence. And um, if it, that means it has to uh, lance members of its, its own citizenry, uh, you know, who don't agree with everything that's been going on since 2014, they're more than willing to. Let me ask you this. So there's been a bit of a kerfuffle, I call it a kerfuffle, um, with comments that Lavrov made with Israel. So Lavrov said, quote, I could be wrong, but Hitler, too, had Jewish blood in him. This means absolutely nothing. Why, as Jewish people say, the most ardent anti-Semites are usually Jewish. Every family member has a black sheep, as we like to say. Now, this, of course, caused all sorts of consternation in Israel. And we have right here, quote, Foreign Minister Lavrov's remarks are both unforgivable and outrageous statement, as well as a terrible historical error. Israeli Foreign Minister Yair Lapid tweeted, because there's always a tweet on Monday. Jews did not murder themselves in the Holocaust. The lowest level of racism against Jews is to accuse Jews themselves of anti-Semitism. Okay, talk about this for me, Mark. Because I got to be honest, I thought that Hitler also had Jewish blood in him. This was something that I thought, maybe not necessarily common knowledge, but I thought it was something that people knew. This doesn't necessarily affect what Hitler did in the least. I'm not even sure why this is overly significant, just because somebody was born to somebody with a certain heritage. What is your take on this? And what was the Russian response to this? Okay, so so first of all, um, the, I I think this is one that's best left for the historians. Uh, but we have heard historians being quoted in the Times of Israel, the Jerusalem Post, talking how the latest research says that yes, it appears that uh, 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 Hitler had a a Jewish uh, paternal grandfather. I mean, that's that's you know what uh, the archival research is is saying at this point. Uh, but I think the more important thing is in this particular context, Lavrov was bringing it up about the Israeli support for these state-armed and state-funded neo-Nazi militias, uh, Azov, the right sector, C-14, Carpathia Siege, IDAR, etc., in Ukraine, and that Israeli weapons and uh, are being sent to these, and that uh, Israeli uh, 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 military has been training them you know, like the rest of, of Western countries. Um, and they, again, brought up this ridiculous argument. How can there be neo-Nazis? Um, uh, Zelensky is Jewish, you know, <laughs> as he pins a hero of Ukraine medal on a right sector fighter uh, for killing other Ukrainians, right? I mean, um, it's, it's, it's such a, it's, it's a, the parody of unfortunately, most people are idiots, and if they want to believe an argument like that and and let that whitewash away everything, they will. Of course, Sputnik listeners are a little more intelligent, a little more critical than that. I think they're well aware that there were plenty of Jewish collaborators, and you know, let's be it for the time period. Uh, these uh, uh, far right forces in Ukraine, right now, at least for the moment, the principal object of their hatred for the last eight years has not been Jews. It might be somewhere down the line. But right now, it's focused on uh, ethnic Ukrainians, 
right? Or, I'm sorry, ethnic Russians in Ukraine, Sovak East Ukrainians that regard you know them as one people, uh, and leftists in Ukraine. That's their primary targets. And as long as that is the principal target of their hatred and violence right now, oh, and the odd Roma that they're they're conducting a pogrom against. But as long as that's what they're doing right now, then these are kosher neo-Nazis as far as the Jewish <laughs> ancestry president of Ukraine is concerned, as far as Israel concerned, as far as Joe Biden and, uh, you know, the Washington establishment is concerned. These are kosher neo-Nazis because they are geopolitically useful tools. The reality, though, of course, is that these neo-Nazis, I mean, you all you have to do is listen to them. They regard these quote unquote Western liberal democratic governments as useful tools for them as well. And I'm sure there's a history here that you can look back and find. Uh, It's not going to end well for anyone. We have about one minute left. And I'm curious about something. If I know Russia's initial objective was to basically protect the Donbass region and those republics. And I get that they wanted to make sure Crimea was part of Russia. But if Ukraine is going to take this route of we're not going to surrender, victory is the only condition. I mean, is this a situation where Russia is going to have to get far more involved in this conflict and is not going to be able to end in the way that they want it to end? I mean, I know they don't want to occupy the country. But what do you think is going to take place if that's the condition that these guys go with? Yeah, this ends with the partition of Ukraine. Uh, possibly even the balkanization of Ukraine. The only question is where the lines are and what kind of regime emerges in Kiev as the head of whatever rump state is left of Ukraine when it's over. That's the way this ends. Wow. Mark, always, man, appreciate these conversations. I swear I learned so much talking to you. The voice you guys were listening to is Mark Sloboda. He's an international relations and security analyst. You can find him on Twitter at Mark Sloboda one and find him on Facebook at facebook.com slash Gramsci. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. She was like, oh, right, I'm supposed to say something. Oh, that's my turn now. <laughs> that's my turn. Fair enough, fair enough. God, man, I always love talking to Mark. I, I love those conversations. It's, I think the foreign policy thing is so fascinating to me. It's, it's very, it's like life under normal circumstances has all of these competing priorities. And sometimes it's very mysterious in regards to how other people act, why they're acting that way, what's going on in their heads. But in foreign policy, it's like there's an objective that we need to accomplish. Right. Very clarified. There's an opposition that doesn't want you to accomplish that objective. Okay. You have all sorts of tools at your disposal, whether it's propaganda, whether it's media, whether it's military, whether it's cash. Okay, now, figure out how to accomplish those objectives within the context of what you have at your disposal. Right. These it. are the tools. Yeah. It is fascinating. It yeah, it is utterly fascinating. You're dealing with states and governments. I mean, look at the pressure that's basically being applied to the West right now. The ruble, two-year high. This is an economic war, right? 
Ruble to your eye. The entire point was to destroy the ruble. It's backfiring. The governments in the UK, in Germany, in the United States, all of them are under pressure at this point based on inflation and the economic damage. The $33 billion, even Democrats are like, whoa, whoa. Whoa! Why are we giving not many? Not many, not but many. a few raised an eyebrow, <laughs> saying like, "Whoa!" Wait a second. Well, I wouldn't say the politicians mm-hmm. are are raising their eyebrows. Public, yes. The public is like, "Whoa, whoa!" Did you say thirty three with yeah. a B? It's like, what in the hell? Billion? I am paying fifty percent more for my gas prices. Right. We're in a recession, and you're giving thirty three billion dollars to make the situation worse. I mean, that's... To continue a war. Yes. I mean, forget how you feel about, oh, I feel bad for the Ukraine. By I way, do too, an unwinnable war. It's an, un- number one, there's there's no good outcome no. For, for Ukraine. So the question becomes, do you want this war to end now or later or 10 years from now? Right. Like Volodymyr Zelensky thinks. <laughs> We're going to fight the front air. But the outcome is the same, folks. They're running out of men. The outcome is the same. Yes. The so, I mean, and look, you can look at what's taking place. Maripol was a huge loss. I mean, that was one of the major military engagements and loss. Land bridge to Crimea is being created. Right. Um, you have the Dumbass Republics. They're in Russian hands. And you have what, Kherson and some of these other villages that are basically being taken and also going to end up being either independent republic, republics or in the Russian sphere. So it's like the money that these guys are given, it's almost like we're going to fight to victory. Okay, what if victory is not on the table? Then what? Victory is, is not literally not an option right. at this point. Like that is not an outcome that is feasible by any stretch of anybody's imagination. The scary part to me is what are they going to do when they realize Ukraine lost? No, they know it, Jamaro. They know the it, thing. but I guess they my catch is, know. are they ever going to acknowledge that? But, or are right. they going to continue to go forward with, okay, well, we need to put troops in. Or we need to get, because already they have advisors. It's a civil war. Right. But not being honest about it. They're putting in advisors. They're putting in trainers. They're sending in weapons. What's next? Because the DOD and all of the people involved with the DOD, war makes a ton of money. And, few and people, that's, a few, yeah. They, and those are, I mean, who? where do you think Lloyd Austin came from? He came from, what, was it Raytheon? Yeah. He was on the board at Raytheon? Yeah. Who do you think is going to benefit his boys. Raytheon's got a benefit. Lloyd Austin's boys. Like, this is no different. I kept thinking of this in the context of, like, George Bush this morning. I, I had a white hot rage this morning. H? W. Because if you think about it, lie into a war. They are lying into a war. Get us involved sending weapons, materials. You end up lying about the reason in the context of the war that has basically taken place. The war is a lost war, meaning Afghanistan, but in Iraq. There's no way you can tell me that that was a win. I mean, yes, you were able to kill a million Iraqis, but keep in mind, it was a war of aggression, and those people were basically innocent. So it's like you have Biden doing something very similar in regards to the way he's inching us. The only difference here is a few differences, but one of the main ones is this is a nuclear-powered nation, and you're basically in a proxy war where you are creating weapons, supposedly, in order to give to them to kill other Russians. It is stated, it is known that that is the objective of the United States. That is disturbing. I mean, even the Lynn Lease thing, that is disturbing. You guys are giving billions of dollars for what? It's our money. Our as in we the people. Yes. That is our money. And by most accounts, I would say that the overwhelming majority of Americans don't want our money going out there to prolong the inevitable, to prolong added deaths, added war, added carnage. 
added destruction. I would say most, the overwhelming, like I would venture to say in the 90s. Yeah. 90-ish percentile. It's like, hey, you want to end no. poverty around the world? Or you want to give this money to Ukraine in a losing war? Which one? Right, it's, it's pouring good money after bad. Also, it's weird. I'm, I'm going to go to the headlines, but it's weird to just $30 billion out of nowhere. In a heartbeat. And you think to yourself, wait a minute, you're not even paying for school loans. Are yeah. you ins- like, what are you, like... Like, it's, it's disturbing to me. So we can't Gram- get Medicare for all. Grandma can't get her medicine. Grandma can't get her medicine. We can't get a public option. That's off the table. You can't pay for school loans. Again, something that is a benefit to the country itself. And yet, billions of dollars. But Zelensky can get all the howitzers and additional money that he needs. It's disturbing and it is aggravating. But to Grandma, mildly. It is Grandma, a slap hold in the face. on. Hold on, Grandma. The you medicine's coming in 10 years. You can cut the insulin in half. That's right. That'll work. <laughs> it's like food versus insulin. It's just aggravating. That's all. We're in literally in going into a recession, and they are keep digging that ditch. And now they're even looking at China. It was like, hey, hey, you're next, buddy. Taiwan. This, yeah. We it's can't, insane. We can't handle one proxy war front, much less two. a two proxy war front with the second biggest economy in the world. Just think of the backlash the Chinese can enact on us. If we're having an issue with this, meaning if they're having an, like the economic war backfiring on Russia, but one thing, why would it backfire? Meaning why would you go through a policy that has the potential to backfire in such a way and then to not think about the fact that it will backfire in this way? Meaning the moment that they did this, I thought Russia is going to do something with gas. Sure, and what obviously. It, of course, right? And yet, none of those eggheads, those stupid idiots in the room that is green with Joe Biden recognize it. And then all of a sudden, they're just like, oh my God, I can't believe they're doing gas. And it's like, but you tried, you literally enunciated a plan to destroy their economy. It's like, wait a minute, you know that Russia is a nat gas supplier to the world and you didn't think- Expect that? That outcome would happen? It's weird. Think about what China as an economic powerhouse. Exactly. How much it doesn't, it's not just a US China relations thing. <laughs> China is the world manufacturer yes. for everybody. Yes. Everybody. Try to disconnect from that economy in this way. Good luck with that, Jake Sullivan. Yeah, pay for our values. It's Jake Sullivan. I'm, I'm going to, people keep saying Biden. I'm you think saying it's Jake Sullivan. Jake Sullivan is the puppet master behind this. Really? I mean, for the China one or for the Ukraine stuff? Mostly this one right now, this fire. But I think the one pulling the strings is Jake Sullivan. Jake Sullivan. And he was with him uh, as the Biden uh, advisor when he was vice president. It was some. So he's he's been with President. He's been with Biden for a while. He's been with Joe Biden for a long time. So Biden trusts him. This is a radical catastrophe that didn't need to happen. It is completely immoral. They provoked a war. Then they... Yeah, it's just aggravating. And it's like, man, I can't believe this thing is going on like this with all of these people basically dying. And their response to this, let's just add in more weapons. <laughs> let's give them more weapons. Let's get into the headlines. In the news, in national news, the Delaware computer repairman who was the first to come across Hunter Biden's infamous laptop from hell has filed a multi-million dollar defamation suit against Democratic Representative Adam Schiff, CNN, The Daily Beast, and Politico, The New York Post reported. Good, good, so on. John Paul Mac, I don't even know why he's doing it, but so on. John Paul <laughs> Mac Isaac came into legal possession of the laptops after U.S. President Joe Biden's son dropped it off at the store for repairs in April 2019 and never came back to pick it up. <laughs> Crack is a powerful drug. The former store owner claimed this month 
After he alerted U.S. federal officials to the incriminating discovery, he was hounded by big tech, the media, the locals, and President Biden's home state of Delaware. We just got to add. Yeah. When you take your electronics to one of these repair shops, right, that are not, let's say in this case, it's a Mac, right? So um, when you take it to one of these technically not authorized repair shops, you sign a form that says, you know, 30 days, 60 days or whatever, it'll be done in that time. Yeah. You know, and if it's not, we'll sign another thing. But if after, let's say, 60 days. After you just leave it. You don't you don't pick it up. It becomes property of the store. Yeah. And the store owner. Right. Because then that's the other way they can make money is those shops. You oh, don't pick it up. They sell those things, basically. Right. They, they refurb it and put it on the market. They put it on eBay and they sell it and whatever and they clean it out. So he basically opens it. So okay, what's in this? Yeah. That's what happened here is this, it, Biden never picked it, Hunter Biden never picked it up and the shop owner was like, all right, it's been several months. This guy's not coming. Let me open it up. Let me clean it out and I'm going to put it on the market. He's like, oh my God. And then saw hell. There's a man doing crack. <laughs> There's a man measuring M&Ms on his penis. Oh my God. There's some underage girls in here. Yeah. There's emails that are implicating the president of the United States in corruption in Ukraine. This looks bad. Right. Yeah. So he reported it. He reported it. And then the authorities sat on it for months. And then Adam Schiff, with that smug face. Can't stand him. That smug, smug man was like demonizing this little shop owner. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope it's a libel lawsuit. I hope, hope it's a defamation lawsuit. The man lost his business. He's had threats against his life. This is just a computer oh, nerd repairman him. guy. He did nothing wrong in this process. No. Nothing he wrong. He did everything right. Yes. He did everything right. And this man has completely lost his livelihood because the feds came after him. The weight of the U.S. government was on top of this small business owner who did everything right. Let's keep going. The CIA issued detailed instructions to social media outlets on how informants can ensure the security of data transfers are not getting caught. The CIA recommended using Tor Internet Browser in particular, which allows you to access the network anonymously, as well as a VPN. Additionally, the agency requests not to use a home or office computer for this purpose. The report says, quote, concerned Russians, concerned Russians are trying to engage the CIA and we want to provide a way to safely contact us, unquote. A CIA official told Washington Post, instructions requiring informants to state their full name, country they're reporting from, the official position, and to specify what access they have to secrets the U.S. intelligence. All the information is then thoroughly examined and verified according to the media, which never lies and tells falsehoods. In international news, employers' trade union, Ports of Sweden, is suing the port workers' union over its blockade of Russia-linked goods and ships, which it deemed illegal. Because of the blockade imposed on March 28th, members of the Port Workers Union no longer deal with Russian ships, Russian goods, or ships on the way to or from Russia. According to the Dockers Union, the blockade is designed to show sympathy for and solidarity with Ukraine. Employers, however, argue that the industrial action is illegal and have taken the issue to court. Again, get them. The, uh, the Russian foreign ministry has issued a rebuttal to Israel foreign ministers Yair Lapid over his attacks on Sergei Lavrov, educating the country's authorities on the problem of neo-Nazism and anti-Semitism in contemporary Ukraine. Quote, we took note of the anti-historical statements of Israel's foreign minister Yair Lapid, which largely explained the course of the current Israeli government in supporting the neo-Nazi regime in Kiev. Unquote. The foreign ministry wrote in an unsigned piece published Tuesday entitled On Anti-Semitism. Unquote. Quote. And look, Sloboda is right about that. You guys are supporting literal neo-Nazis 
and the Ukrainian military has incorporated these guys into the Ukrainian military, these Nazi battalions into the Ukrainian military and been supporting them by state funds. And so the fact that Israel is giving these guys weapons and money is weird and is basically them backing neo-Nazis. It is very strange. Nevertheless, here we are. Um, they have also supported terrorists in Syria. So there's that. The Chinese aircraft carrier Leoling, Leoing has led a battle group into Western Pacific Ocean for, quote, open sea combat training, unquote. Senior Captain Yao Zhusheg, a spokesperson for the People's Liberation Army Navy, said on Tuesday, Yao said the drills are a, quote, routine training exercise with the annual work plan of the plan designed to improve aircraft carrier battle group's ability to fulfill its mission. He reiterated that the drills comply, quote, with relevant international law and practice, not targeting any party, unquote, according to PLA release. Researchers at Carnegie Mellon University have managed to modify a virtual reality headset so that it allows the wearers to experience a sensation of touch in and around their mouth. Gizmodo reports. The team from the university's Future Interfaces group apparently managed to achieve this feat without adding any hardware and actually makes contact with the wearer's face Yeah, to the set. Thanks to an array of ultrasonic transducers attached to it, the modified headset is now capable of creating a sense of touch on one's lips as well as teeth and tongue if the wearer's mouth is open. Ah, dirty researchers. <laughs> <laughs> Just dirty, dirty researchers. Bunch of perverts. Um, the expansion of the universe first discovered back in 1998 to be speeding up, driven, driven. They believe by dark energy exerting a repulsive pressure, rather like an opposite of gravity, could soon grind to a standstill, according to new research. Furthermore, the universe could then begin to shrink, prompting stars, galaxies, and planets to collide on themselves. Eventually, the cosmos could collapse upon itself in a big crunch, revealed the study published in the Journal of Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences. The process could happen remarkably quick, the authors claim, with the universe ending in its acceleration within the next 65 million years. After that, within 100 million years, its leisurely contraction could result in death of time and space or rebirth of a new Big Bang, basically a new universe. I remember having these conversations with my physics professors when I was, um, had physics as a major. Business news. Americans are walking off their jobs in record numbers, in many cases choosing to quit rather than return to the office as employers and remote work policies offered during the COVID-19 pandemic. An all-time high of 4.54 million people quit their jobs in March. Wow edging out a record that was set last November and rising 23% from a year earlier, according to U.S. Labor Department report released on Tuesday. The number of job openings also set a new high at 11.5 million as employers struggle to fill vacant positions amid surging labor costs. Last story, the Russian ruble rose to its strongest position against the dollar in over two years on Tuesday amid reports that Russian dollar payments on two foreign bonds reached the creditors just before deadline averting a default. The exchange rate reached 66.43 rubles per dollar at 13.06 GMT during Tuesday's foreign exchange trading. Bloomberg data showed with the Russian currency losing some of its gains later in the day. Moscow's exchange was closed on Tuesday due to extended public holiday. This day in history, in, 19, in 1675, King Charles II of England commissioned the Royal Observatory in Greenwich. Man, British history is fascinating. In 1904, the United States takes over the construction of the Panama Canal. In 1953, Ernest Hemingway wins the Pulitzer Prize. In 1959, the Grammy is presented for the very first time. In 1994, Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat sign a peace accord to ensure Palestinian self-rule in Gaza and in Jericho. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chance. 
So we are going to have Daniel Lazar come up immediately. And then at 8.30, we're going to have Scotty Nell Hughes join us for a panel. But let's do this. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to be in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. Also, smash that rumble button. Share it to your mama, your daddy. Share it to anybody that's around. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and a course. You can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. When are we taking those calls? They may be at 945, depending on how this particular goes. If we have any time at the end, we'll take them. Put it on speed dial. Get ready. Yeah, (laughs) right, right, right. But let's do this. Let's go to our guests. We have the one and only. There we are. We have the one and only. We have actually Daniel Lazar. Um, one of my favorite people. Daniel Lazar is an independent journalist and author, best known as a critic of the U.S. Constitution, American politics, government, and social policy in general. He's written a number of books, including From Moses to Isis, The Intelligent Heretic's Guide to Monotheism, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War. Daniel, welcome to the show, my man. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. How are you? So far, so good. Better that you are with us. Um, I want to start with the Supreme Court leak. That seems to be the thing on the marquee. Um, people are basically saying this is unfounded or unheard of that a leak comes out of the Supreme Court in this way. Politics tends to leak, Supreme Court, not so much. But it seems like somebody potentially did this for the very effect that is taking place right now. It created a certain level of hysteria and pressure on the Supreme Court for going through with whatever is in that draft document. My question is a little different, though. Should the Supreme Court have been the one to set case law like this in the first place? Or is this something that should have been codified in actual law? Meaning, I get the history around it. But my thing is, is this something that the Supreme Court should have did in the first place? Well, it's a, um, a catch-22 because um, if uh, Congress tried to codify this in ordinary legislation, uh, the Supreme Court, especially the current Supreme Court, would almost certainly st- accuse uh, Congress of overreaching and strike it down on constitutional grounds. So, uh, so essentially, the, the court has Congress coming and going. Uh, it, it, it prevents Congress from uh, from from supporting for for for, um, for canonizing or codifying Roe v. Wade, uh, and then it's going to then it's going to strike down Roe v. Wade and leave Congress with no no recourse. Yeah, but I mean, there's certainly there has to be a way for Congress to be able to craft a law. In a sense, I mean, the Supreme Court can strike that law down if there's something, let's yeah. say, illegal about it or runs afoul of amendments or whatever. Chuck, Chuck Schumer yesterday broke in with a with breaking news of his own saying that we're going to move right now rapidly to put this on the floor, to codify this, make make it actual law of the land, make yeah. it an actual law. We're going to do this right now. Can can they th- do this in a mad dash? I mean, I mean, I, I hate to disabuse you, but 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 um, but, but <laughs> Chuck Schumer is a lying fool. <laughs> By the way, speaking about that, Biden was asked, hey, are you willing to get rid of the filibuster in order to put this into law? Let's play this clip. We have this clip. I I love this clip because my thing was they are never going to do that. The entire point, meaning if they did something about this now, what happens in the election? 
The entire point of having this vulnerable is where if anything happens so they can go and say, hey, I know you hate us. I know we haven't done anything for you, but at the very least, we'll protect Roe v. Wade or protect your ability to get an abortion. Let's play the clip. Let's see what Biden says on this. I'm not I'm not prepared to make those judgments now about. Uh, but, you know, uh, I think the codification of Roe makes a lot of sense. Look, think what Roe says. Roe says what all basic mainstream religions have historically concluded, that Right, that the existence of a human life and being is a question. Is it at the moment of conception? Is it six months? Is it six weeks? Is it is it quickening like Aquinas argued? I mean, so the idea that we're going to make a judgment that is going to say that no one can make the judgment to choose to abort a child based on a decision by the Supreme Court. I think goes way overboard. He thinks it goes way overboard. What is your take on that? I'm just curious about what you think about what Biden just said there. I mean, I didn't believe he was going to touch the filibuster in general, but his assessment of why the Supreme Court shouldn't have done this, what do you think of it? Well, it's amazing, first of all, that he, that he won't even call for the overthrow of the filibuster. The filibuster allows 41 senators to veto any bill, and 41 senators can represent as little as 11 percent U.S. population. That's amazing, number one. Number two, I mean, whether or not that the court is giving a strict reading of the Constitution, and you want to know something, I think the court is correct. I think a strict reading of this antiquated, obsolete, 18th century slaveholders document does not find any basis for abortion. Now, for uh, the right of abortion. Now, the answer is not to say that the Supreme Court read this document <laughs> down that ridiculous route. It is to, it is to recognize that, that the document itself is hopelessly out of date. I strongly support abortion rights, and I think that any democratic society with a small d should, should uphold that right. But you're not going to find that right in an 18th century constitution. That is the problem. And they, they, they essentially the elected branches have no way of overturning the court if it overturns Roe v. Wade. Really? No, I have to. And, and, the, and the amazing thing, by the way, is that four out of the five justices who's, who, who have signed this draft document were appointed by unelected presidents. Oh, right. Bush and Trump, basically. Meaning they lost the popular vote. That's what you mean. Yeah, they were elected by undemocratic. They were appointed by undemocratically installed presidents, number one. Number two, they were approved by a Supreme Court, which is so grossly lopsided that it gives California and Wyoming the same number of votes, even though California has 69 times as many people. So it's a doubly undemocratic body. It's an outrage. I mean, polls show that Americans support uh, abortion rights by a margin of 69%. Yet the great majority is being overridden by an entrenched minority, which the Constitution 
puts in place. The problem is this document. The document is an outrage. It is hopelessly out of, out of date, and yet there is nothing that can be done under the document to remove it or modify it or somehow bring it kicking in and screaming into the 21st century. I was reading this part. It says, LA Times, it says, the original ruling was based on the idea that the Constitution protects a broad right to privacy, which is implied in the 14th Amendment. The amendment says, no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Now, I don't know how that gives abortion. I guess I agree with you on that. I mean, I think I agree with your point, basically, that it's like, yes, I agree with abortion. It should be available in a country. Agreed. Especially in a modern country. By the same token, it seems like it was left persistently vulnerable because at any point, the Supreme Court could have basically changed it. Yeah. I feel like it's been done on purpose. It's they have, especially under Obama, when he had a super majority, he punted. He punted. And then left when, Merrick Garland. Then I was just going to say with Merrick Garland, he let he let Mitch McConnell push him around because he was a lame duck. I mean, that's the funny thing is he was a lame duck president and he really could have done whatever he wanted. He could have went to the mat for that. And he he had every right to do so. If he wanted to, he could have. That was the forum. That was the perfect stage to do whatever he wanted to leave a lasting legacy. He chose to focus on the TPP. Well, well, there was that. And of course, he wanted to keep uh, Obamacare alive because, you know, they make these backroom agreements with each other. And and sure, back then, pre-Trump, he wanted to keep up airs of, you know, being a statesman and Mitch McConnell is one cunning, shrewd bastard. And he and and this is, you know, what we're looking at in the court today, because Mitch McConnell out politicked Obama. She may as well blame it on Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Or her. <laughs> or her. She could have right? stepped down too. I mean, she she should have stepped down too. It was pure vanity that kept her that kept her going. She had stepped down in uh, in twenty twelve. When there was a growing pressure on her to do mm-hmm. it, she had cancer, right? I mean, yeah, yeah she had cancer. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, Ginsburg was kept going by pure vanity, and uh, and uh, and yet, um, same thing as keeping Diane Feinstein, and uh, you we know, we were just talking about her recently. <laughs> I'm from California, and she has been, you know, sitting in her seat for literally my whole life. Yeah. I, I can't. I can't think. I mean, I I was shocked when Barbara Boxer stepped down yep. because I thought these people would be there. I mean, literally until they got carted off, by, you know, by the morgue. Died in office <laughs> in the I, chair, I right? I mean, it's amazing because what the reports came out that Feinstein they thought she was incompetent or something. They're like her, right, not her, altogether there. Her mental well, faculties I mean, were degrading. She's almost ninety, I believe. Like her her mental faculties are starting to go to degrade. Yeah. Well, we have Scotty with us. Scotty Nell Hughes is a journalist, news anchor, and political commentator. She was a CNN commentator during the 2016 presidential election, often speaking in support of Trump. She was with RT America as a full-time anchor. Scotty, welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? Oh, good morning. I am writing my nomination for Elizabeth Warren to be given the Oscar this year. Her performance out in front of the Supreme Court yesterday, if you have not seen it, I'm sure you have. It was just, it was beautiful. It brought a tear to my eye because I really felt the emotion and the anger. And she's never been so angry. It's almost like she's pregnant herself. (laughs) Scotty, what's your take on this? We got Daniel's take in regards to how he um, viewed this. Is the Supreme Court the forum to hold this particular law? And more importantly than that, why on earth? Are they 
flipping out like this, knowing full well that this gives them the opportunity in the midterms that they would have never had prior. And more than that, more to the point. But basically, this was supposed to be their issue that they were basically supposed to protect, that they left vulnerable and basically lost it. What is your take on that? I mean, do you believe that that's the reason why they left it dangling like that in the first place? Let me point something out. I was just had the honor less than 48 hours ago on Monday morning to join the two of you, the most amazing hosts on Morning Talk, uh-huh. <laughs> and to talk about all of the, um, the issues of the day, war, um, everything from the weekend. And if you would have asked any of us that by 48 hours later that the news cycle would be dominated by an issue of abortion, we would have all laughed. Yes. What are you talking about? Like, this was not even on our radar, and yet it's an issue that just like immigration, just like gun control, just like race relations, it's a trigger issue. And you can be guaranteed every time, especially to the extent that we're seeing it right now, that this trigger is pulled. It's not for the reason for the triggering it, for the actual issue itself. It's not about abortion right now, because if it was, this would have been talked about back in February when they had the vote. You have to wonder, why are we all of a sudden finding our news focused on this rather than everything else that even just 24 hours ago, 48 hours ago, was just taking up their time? So that's my first suspicion and my take on all this is going, why is this such a big deal? Um, right now, it's a, it's a major issue. We do need to have a discussion about Roe versus Wade. But why was this leaked right now at this point? Look at it for two things. Either A, it was leaked because obviously the person inside the Supreme Court did not like how the decision was going to go and wanted to have this public outcry to try to keep the decision from going where it says it, should, where it, says it looks like the vote will be taken and be confirmed. And so they thought if we had enough of a public outcry, that it would change that vote. We'll see. I don't think that's necessarily going. I don't know many Supreme Court justices that change their opinion right. based on anything besides they're usually pretty hardcore. In fact, that's why we have them up there. So they're just going to damage their own credibility as any of them do not go along with the vote. Or the second part of this is about the engagement. And it might be a little bit of both because what we're seeing with the dramatic display of Elizabeth Warren yesterday all of the punditry and all the view and all of, once again, the lie that's being told about Roe versus Wade, that if the Supreme Court goes down this rule, this path, that abortion will be, uh, will be outlawed in the, in the country. That's not what this rule actually says. That's not what the court says. It just says the power goes back to the state, the individual states, where it should have been in existence all along if we were going to actually handle the Constitution. That piece of paper. We don't need that. that we've already decided that paper is obsolete at this point in the in the United States underneath this administration. So why would we put faith in it accordingly? I think this is a lot of show, and I think that what comes out of it. Um, I'm hopeful. I'm a very. I, I am honestly. I'm a very pro life woman. So this is uh, good news to me. But I just have to question the timing once again, and why is it because. The, the war agenda is not going as well. <laughs> wanted it. You know, and what scares me, if this doesn't work, if this doesn't engage people on social issues, what comes next? Well, history would show us we're going to have a fight about, we're going to have an unfortunate fight about over the Second Amendment. There's going to be some sort of craziness that happens over that. And then the last step is always going to be a big race fight that's going to happen in the streets. Well, folks, 
you also have to consider now, now that Roe has been brought up here, is Ukraine a pro-choice <laughs> or pro-life state? Do we know where we're sending our money? Are we sending it to baby killers or women choice lovers? I don't know. I'm just kidding with that one, mostly. Most, mostly, but I am curious. Ukraine. Ukraine is extremely, they have very harsh, very strict abortion laws, right? Just like Russia, they are very much a conservative, orthodox country. Yeah. Well, there you go. Especially in this way. So they are actually very pro-life. Once again, that's my laughing about all these liberals that are trying to tackle, um, that are put the blue and yellow flags in there, the pro- progressive, sorry, extreme liberals that put those flags in their, in their uh, byline, their storyline. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know what kind of, it's kind of like the Cubans. If you bring them here, do you know what kind of voters you're bringing? You're actually bringing pretty conservative voters. Yeah, I know. Um, Daniel, I want to go to the whole WikiLeaks thing. Because there's, when this was put out, the media kind of re- regarded the person who leaked it as almost a hero, right? Like there was no issue of, oh, this is illegal. I can't believe they did that. By the same token with Assange, he needs to be tortured. He needs to be put or in Daniel prison. Or Daniel Hale. Yeah, or Daniel Hale, the, the gentleman who released the other information. Or Kiriakou. Who basically our ex- friend right here? Yeah, who accidentally exposed that we were basically torturing people, which was against the law. Can you give me this kind of weird hypocrisy that's associated with information that gets leaked that people well, like? Hold versus- on, hold on. Before Dan weighs in, we we right now are all speculating yes. as to who this person could be. I mean, the what what you would imagine would be the the so called obvious suspects would be their clerks, the Supreme Court clerks. It would be people that have access to these documents. Um, it's unclear exactly where these documents came from. It was if it was something that was sitting in a copy machine and it failed to go to the hands it was supposed to go to. It's just somebody or, took like pictures of right, it. Right, right. It was like somebody, yeah, took took actual photos, and it wasn't like a you know a hacked thing. It wasn't a PDF version. It was an actual photo of copies. So, and mind you, this is from. February, folks. This is this is uh, an early, early draft. We don't know where the court stands on this. They are several months away. Right, they could change. They can change, and we and, and we don't know where Justice Roberts. He could potentially be the tiebreaker. So we don't know if we're if the whole country has their hair on fire for nothing because we we actually don't know. The Supreme Court has surprised people, and 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 Justice Roberts has surprised people with um, some of the ways that he has ruled as the tiebreaker, uh, but it is very early and we don't know yet who this person is, this leaker. Six conservatives. So they only need right. Roberts. May not even matter. Well, yes and no. I mean, he could, he's obviously the, the chief justice, so he has a lot of sway. Yeah, in, but he only has one vote. Right. But he has a lot of sway behind closed doors. <laughs> I he, hear can, you. he can convince, I mean, people fail to think that you think just the numbers that the math makes sense? Not necessarily. All these backroom deals that people talk about. And you got to remember that these, the reporters that this was leaked to at Politico, these are people that, that historically cover national security. These aren't people that normally cover SCOTUS. So I find a lot of weird, not holes. Anomalies but just, in this. Yeah, just they are very much anomalies. Things that the dots don't connect. So, so Dan, when, when we're talking about this, Whoever this leaker is, maybe it's, I don't know, the cleaning lady. I mean, you never know. You really don't know. But this person is already being heralded as as a a hero, as somebody that's saving women's rights. Whereas someone like Julian Assange, that evil bastard, (laughs) Russian-loving Aussie, 
Let them rot in jail. Well, I mean, I mean, I assume, I, I assume, like you, it's a, it's a liberal clerk somewhere. I mean, that's my assumption. But it could equal, equally be the opposite. It could be a conservative who wants to, who's, who's uh, surprised at the delay in issuing this ruling and wants to lock the five, uh, the five justices into place. We don't really know what's going on. We have no idea whether this person's a hero or a villain depending on your point of view. Uh, but number two, I mean, no, the Assange case is just an atrocity. Yeah, yeah, some people, some leakers are good, some leakers are bad. You know, uh, I mean, Joe Biden called uh, Julian Assange a high-tech terrorist, uh, which was an absolute outrage. Uh, and, you know, and, and Assange is languishing in prison. He's ill. He's had a series of mini-strokes. He's like one of those Soviet dissidents who were who were consigned to insane asylums back in the 70s and 80s and were, you know, were force-fed Thorazine. Um, and, uh, you know, they came out just, just mentally crippled. And uh, that's, a, that's Assange's uh, story as well. And he's facing, he's facing a, uh, a, a, a treason rap in the U.S. He'll go to jail for the rest of his life for leaking documents. And uh, and that is the same thing that this leaker is accused of, you know, accused of doing as well, except that are applauding him or her. Right? Doesn't make sense at all. Scotty, we, whoever this person is, let's let's bar the cleaning lady. Let's <laughs> let's just say let's assume for right now that it's a clerk because they they are people that would have direct access to these documents, right? They would see them. The papers shuffle back and forth past their hands. Let's assume it's a clerk. Do we know if SCOTUS forces these young people clerking for them to sign like NDAs to sign? Because right now, I, I mean, what what limited research I've been able to do on this, I haven't seen yet that there is a any law per se, a law that prevents that has that has been broken. However, however, they may not be a criminal in the eyes of the law technically. However, I'm curious to know. If SCOTUS forces people to sign NDAs, in which case you can face some sort of like probably civil penalties, but not criminal. And obviously, if you're a clerk and you're hoping to be a lawyer or a judge one day, your career is probably tanked because your name is going to come out. Your name is is out. Manila, you're correct. There's definitely an ethical issue if there isn't one illegal. But let me also point out, to get one of these clerkships, you have to be the best of the best of your law school class. And I, when you go to law school, there is you do sign an oath. It's almost like the, the doctors have their oath to take care of their patients. Same thing with lawyers. That hence why you have this. You have uh, clients put uh, client confidentiality uh, if you talk with a lawyer. Um, that's sort of the same thing. So there is a trust factor between. And, and let me tell you something. If you are willing to betray the judge that puts you underneath their arm, underneath their wing. Uh, that's a pretty big sin, and that's a pretty big damaging because, like I said, we know we have very little faith and trust right now in the executive branch. We have very little faith and trust in the legislative branch. Of the three, can you agree with me that it was really the judicial branch, if you had to rank them, that you put the most faith and trust as being no. at least had the most integrity until now? Because what you're seeing is this is going to be used to politically motivate a decision if it has not already been made. And either way, the Supreme Court has already lost because of this. If these justices change on what it looks like this brief is going to be, if they change their vote, then they're going to show that they can actually be persuaded not by the law 
and that their initial decision was not a legal based on legal uh, a legal argument, but it's based on a public argument. And that's not what we need our Supreme Court, the judicial branch, is supposed to be. It is supposed to be blind, even though we know she's not, but it is at least supposed to have that intention. And in this case, that blindfold's been taken off, and it, whatever the ruling's going to be, it will be tainted from here on out. Where do you appeal a Supreme Court decision? Yeah, and I, I've never had, I didn't have faith in a court like that. I mean, the, when they put George Bush in office, that basically decimated any belief in the court to me. Yeah. These were ideological actors. The reason they fight so hard to get members on the Supreme Court for a particular party is because they know they are ideological actors when they're going in and they're solidifying their particular side and their particular advantage. Yeah, I didn't have faith in any of that stuff. I, I want to go to the elections that took place. And this one is for you, Daniel. Nina Turner lost again. Lost again. No, this was her Nina. second run. And, you know, the first time around, Nina Turner had name recognition. She was working yeah. with Sanders. She's All these people know her. Yeah, she, exactly. Super exactly. friendly. Great, great. Everybody lady. knew her. Lefties loved her. And Chantel Brown ends up winning in the end in the first race that they ran. Yes, because the establishment backed her. Exactly. They were putting out all of that money. They were putting out all these hit pieces all of it towards the end. And the people were kind of wondering, like, okay, what did Nina Turner do wrong in that race? Regardless of opposition, you're always going to get opposition. You're running in a race. What did she do wrong? So this time around, people thought, okay, she's going to correct whatever those errors are, et cetera. Not so much. So it says, uh, Chantel Brown was projected to win a Cleveland area re-election bid on Tuesday, defeating progressive challenger Nina Turner in a high-profile rematch that was seen as an early test of Democratic Party's direction and leading up to midterms. What is going on with this, Daniel? I mean, is it just the lefty thing is no longer popular? Is it that something was going on in Ohio? I mean, to me, I look at this stuff as almost a canary in a coal mine. If Nina Turner had that level of popularity, why wasn't that enough for her to basically win? And what does this mean for the midterms going forward? Well, it's a, um, you know, you're absolutely right. It's a huge defeat for the, uh, for the Bernie Sanders wing of the party, the Bernie Sanders AOC wing. Uh, there's no, no question about it that, that that wing has gotten weaker and weak, weaker. But, you know, but um, it doesn't bolster Democratic fortunes at all because the Democrats has come across as, as just weak as well. And, uh, you know, and and this, you know, and Joe Biden's ineffectual response to this to this uh, this ruling is just, uh, is you know, is just pathetic. The Democrats have there's nothing they can do, nothing whatsoever, except keep their fingers crossed and hope that one of those five justices, you know, changes his mind uh, and and goes to the other side. But uh, but short of that, there's nothing they can do. And so and and voters. Nothing turns voters off more than weakness. Agreed. And voters like self-confidence. They like uh, they like people who think you know who who believe who would outline a strong program and can forge ahead. And the Democrats can't do that. So it's yet another blow to them. Uh, it's really unfair because <laughs> they have stood up for abortion rights, uh, and they're being now being shafted by this uh, this undemocratic. <laughs> Supreme Court, but uh, but because they have no answer, because they're crippled, because they're weak, uh, they'll wind up uh, suffering. Let me ask you this. Do you think it affects the midterms? I definitely do. I definitely do. I think that they, it, makes it, it makes Democratic prospects look, look worse and worse. You really? You think this makes them look worse, not better? See, I took it as a loophole in the sense of the public at the very least can organize around, meaning – up to this point, they had nothing to talk about. I mean, there were articles in the Hill basically saying, hey, Democrats should tank it in 2024 and refashion Just themselves. Go. Just let it go. Just Look don't even worry about it. You're going to get wiped out. And so those were like the headlines. 
And so from my standpoint, they had nothing to talk about. Biden had failed miserably. They couldn't necessarily talk about their um, elective achievements because they basically were none. All of those people died from COVID. The um, Afghanistan war went utterly horrendous. You had inflation going through the roof that is basically eating into people's um, earnings and whatnot. And so they had nothing to run on. Now you have abortion. And so I guess my thing is, is giving them this kind of talking point. We are the defenders of abortion. That type of talking point. Oh, Republicans hate women, et cetera. Is that enough to overcome this kind of impotence that the public recognizes coming out of this particular party after two years? of leadership. Scotty, go ahead. If you want to ask answer, Scotty. Well, let me throw this out there to you. Here's the fine line that Democrats have to work on this. On one hand, yes, you could motivate. We could see a bunch of pink yarn hats once again gathering in Washington <laughs> about the Women's March. In fact, I imagine the knitting has started already. The vagina hats that they were wearing right. <laughs> the pink vagina hats. Back in style. Invest in yarn, folks. The yarn stock is going way up. on us. Run on up right now. Um, actually, I think they're still on a container out in the middle of the ocean, probably from they haven't been unloaded yet. Uh, but here's where it's going to where it's backfiring. I do not understand how trashing and attacking police cars in the street, LAPD cars in the streets of Los Angeles last night. That's where it backfires. America does not like to see the riots in her streets, and that's what does not need to be going on for the Democrats. At voting time, election time. So whatever this rhetoric is that got them all stirred up, I don't understand how crashing a cop car and stopping on a cop car and attacking police officers has anything to do with abortion rights and is going to get sympathy for you. Well, Scotty, Scotty, I'm with you on this. I think that this early leak of a potential SCOTUS decision is actually demoralizing for the Democrats and will actually rally the conservative base and they have the wind in their sails and they already knew that they had, you know, the red wave coming in November, but now it's going to be a tsunami. And then last night also, basically everybody that Trump backed in the primaries, all won. What do you think about that, Scotty? I was watching, obviously, J.D. Vance, a lot of, this was one of those that kind of was interesting to watch because J.D. Vance was it initially he was a big never-Trumper. Yeah. He's kind of gone to the other side because he knew in Ohio, and we're talking about the Ohio race. Um, we in Tennessee yesterday was a primary day for us as well. And the thing about in Tennessee is that it not it, the, the moderate Republicans did not win. It was the conservatives, the extreme conservatives in the primary who won. So what you're seeing is, is this divide within the Republican Party is how powerful is the Trump name. Now, at this point, it's very powerful because there's no other names out there. But if you start to see other endorsements get involved, uh, then you could see the Trump name not be so powerful. Uh, it, it still shows. You remember this weekend, Trump was in Ohio. That probably also helped because it's not, it's not about getting also your people out. It's about making sure you don't, the other side isn't motivated to get out as either. And so if it's voters in Ohio, Democrats saw, you know what, it's going to be a lost cause. It's not worth me taking out of my lunch hour, especially those that are just involved on election day and they stayed home, that right there is just as damaging as putting a vote in for the D's. That's still a win for the R's. Absolutely agree. Daniel, what's your take on that? I mean, what is the rationale? Is it, are you thinking of this like Manila, where it's like, okay, these guys are demoralized because of this massive catastrophic failure from their standpoint? I mean, these are the offenders of abortion, right? And that's a loss. There's a win in the other column if the Supreme Court indeed does 
um, do it. Is that the way you're thinking about it? That's why you're thinking that, no, this is going to be even worse than what it was going to be prior if nothing had happened. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I think that the whole democratic program is crashing. I mean, the democratic program, you know, faith in the Supreme Court, you know, uh, anti-Russia, uh, you know, war in the Ukraine. Uh, these policies are going to get increasingly unpopular as time goes on. Um, and, you know, and so, so what are Democrats going to run on in, uh, in, in, in 2024? You know, a Democrat in the White House so we can eventually appoint enough Supreme Court justices uh, who will then repeal the repeal of Roe v. Wade. I mean, and is that going to get voters excited or are voters going to like just be completely turned off and just say like it's more Democratic BS, especially as the war in Ukraine turns sour and the and the economy tanks and, you know, and and. Joe Biden, you know, uh, you know, slips into the uh, the depths of a senile psychosis. <laughs> you know, so 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 what's going on here? The Democrats to be completely failing on all counts, and the Supreme Court really has them nailed to the wall. Let me ask you this, and this is related to the Ukraine thing, and I want to get your take on it too, Scotty. This is going into what is Biden going to do? Like the war is not going according to plan. You have the ruble just came out, what, two-year high in the middle of an economic war against Russia, where the, a point of the goal was basically to destroy the Russian economy. Okay, that's not going according to plan. There's pressure on various Western governments in Germany, United States, in the UK. All of these governments are basically under pressure. Macron, even though he got elected, is massively unpopular. And that unpopularity is getting worse because of the pressure that is being exerted on those governments because of issues of oil, economy, et cetera. We are not immune to that ourselves. It went 1.4% over the course of the last several months that we've dropped. We're going into a recession. What is Biden going to do if what he's, he's put all of his political capital into the issue of Ukraine and it doesn't seem to be working? What is he going to do? Like, are you worried that after the advisors that he's sending, after the weapons that he's sending, after the billions of dollars that he's sending, that he's not going to be able to accept the loss? What do you think about that? I mean, do you think he's going to cross that line into oblivion or... Is he just going to keep treading this line? My concern is that if it becomes clear that Ukraine lost, if it becomes clear that Biden and all of the political capital that he put into it came for naught, what does Biden do? And that question scares me. What is your thought, um, Scotty? Let's go to you first. Well, let me just say, I, I, you're usually very, very smart, and you're usually right on top of it, both of you in your analysis. But I have to tell you, you're absolutely silly if you think the Ukraine situation was a loss from day one. Oh, I get that. I am talking about the perspective and the perception that is being given to the public. I mean, I remember the I was propaganda. reading. Propaganda. Yeah, the Let's propaganda. I mean, at the end of the day, there was a situation where the public, Western media reported the actual numbers of tanks and materials that Ukraine was basically losing. It was astonishingly high. The response to the public was, oh, this is propaganda. It was coming from like NBC News or something. But they had been so propagandized that Ukraine is winning. Ukraine is pushing the Russian back. Ukraine is holding them off. Missing the point that Maripol has fallen. The other troops, the main Ukrainian military is basically surrounded in the east. Russia is accomplishing its objectives. They've just been propagandized to. But I'm making the point that Biden and his administration are still screaming that victory is the objective. And when it becomes clear and the propaganda falls away where Russia has accomplished his objectives, what is Biden going to do? That's what I'm getting at. Meaning I get the reality of it, that Ukraine is lost, has no potential to win. And that they're dumping those weapons in to basically bleed Russia away. I get that. The public does not. The public does not. 
And so from the standpoint of the Biden administration, at the point where it becomes clear that he and the political capital that he invested into that war, when he has nothing else to show on a domestic front and the other foreign policy escapades were basically failures, what is he going to do? Is this going to be like Vietnam where these guys get further ingratiated into this conflict because of all the political capital that has been invested in it? That's what I'm getting to. No, and I get that. And that's what I'm saying. We're never going to be able to get that. You're never going to get this administration. We fought a 20-year war that was lost from day one in Afghanistan. And there's still Democrats are spinning it, even though it's very hard, that it was a win for the pullout, that this was, you know, that this was still winning. We're never going that the general public are never going to think that there was a loss in Ukraine. That's the sad part. Hence why, once again, you're going to see the shiny object today. It's Roe versus Wade. That's how I know that it's like, okay, what happened in Ukraine yesterday? Why is he trying to distract with it? The president himself was down in Troy, Alabama, of all places, at the Lockheed Martin, and where we've sent a third of our missiles to Ukraine. So what does that mean? Make more missiles. Uh, he, there is a major distraction. We will never, the general public will not be allowed to know the truth because the press corps is their true uh, PR firm. It's the best PR firm you can have. My fear, my only fear in all of this is that we will do what we did in Afghanistan and continue to, to have this go on. However, once again, I read a great article. I can't remember which who, who published it saying uh, Putin's, you know, make this as boring of a war as possible because the American press can't cover it. You have now basically had most press people pulled out. They've left their five star hotels in, in Liev and uh, Lviv, and they are they, they, there's not much to talk about right now. And that helps. That's how Putin has planned this to be slow and steady, because he knows that if you give the U.S. press, even a little piece of meat, they're going to make it into a full five-course dinner. That's where I think that this is big. In, in this is how we know that the Ukraine, the Biden administration knows that they are, they know, they've known since day one they're losing this argument. But what you're starting to see is the other countries are caving on them. So they need to distract them. And how you do that, you bring them back home. But I'm wondering if the American people are getting whiplash yet. Because it's every time the domestic gets hot, they send us international. Every time international is getting hot, they bring us back home. Are we tired of playing pickleball with this administration and letting them distract us? The best players in the world in the media right now, allowing them to play this game back and forth because it's their benefit as well. Well, Scotty, what do you think then, final thoughts here in the last two minutes, uh, with the the Midwest, I'll just, I'll just lump it all together there because it was mostly in the Midwest and Tennessee, um, with the red wave that happened there, is that the signal of what November is going to look like? It should, but Manila, here's the deal. Going into the 2020 election, it should have been an easy race for Republicans as well, and yet you had the most popularly elected president ever happen. Right. So what scares me in this place, Republicans have, have, have become wise to the situation, uh, that you cannot look at what happened in 2020 and have a couple of questions. Yeah. But it is what it is. We have where we are now. Will Republicans make sure that there are safeguards in place, attorneys, the poll watchers in place to guarantee that there is actually a real vote and that we don't have the shutdown, the mass ability for, for corruption to happen like what we saw could happen in 2020. The lack of accountability in our elections in 2020, all under the umbrella of a pandemic and, and health. 
Scotty Nell Hughes. We got to leave it there. Yeah, massively disagree with you on that last point. <laughs> but fair we enough. Leave it there. Yeah, we got to leave it there. Scotty Nell Hughes, journalist, news anchor, political commentator. You guys are listening to Faultlines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment. Faultlines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I am your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. We have 421 people watching today. Share this video, hit that rumble button, all the good stuff. Share it to your mama, to your daddy, to your uncle, niece, dog, cat. If they like to enjoy and watch, sometimes animals like to just watch the TV and stuff like that. Or if you're at Best Buy, just turn it on. Put it on all the the laptops, just let it go. Walk around with it on your cell phone. (laughs) Just do that. Just turn your cell phone up and just walk around. See, I I used to do annoying things like that in high school. Did you? like turn on all the TVs and like put it on a certain channel or whatever. Everyone should do that. So you're basically an ass when you yes. were younger. on Fault Lines. <laughs> right. Stream it on Fault Lines and just leave it. That's funny. And that's everyone funny. everyone can see what you're watching. Yeah, good conversation with them, too. I enjoy that. Daniel Lazar, I always love when he comes on. He's one of those guys who's like, look, the Constitution is a problem. We need to fix the Constitution. And I can't entirely say he's wrong. I mean, it's I get very dicey about this notion of, okay, let's just rip it all up. Let's just have a right, Constitutional right. Convention. I get very I dicey about that. I don't believe in ripping it up and starting over. Because it's I like, believe, look at the people who will be writing it. I, right. I believe in building and altering, and, you know, that's what these amendments are for. Yeah. That's what it's for. Yeah. They just work that way towards Problem amendments. is you can't get that stuff done. Right. And we to his point— can't get anything done in this country. Well, and that's this point about the filibuster. It's like, you have a Senate. It's a minority body. California gets two votes. Iowa gets two votes. California, if it was an economy, would be the fifth largest economy in the world. And so it's like it goes to the Senate and then it basically dies. And I get it, right? If you're Iowa, you don't necessarily want California to be governing your politics in Iowa. So you need some kind of way to balance that out. Totally get it. By the same token, the idea that the Senate is that way is problematic greatly. Um, Other countries have parliaments and they do just fine with those parliaments. And the arguments about, oh, well, policy is just going to go back and forth. They're going to pass something. Then the next part, they're going to come in and pass that. Nonsense. That doesn't mean that it's going to happen that way. And if it does happen that way, the public basically shows. I mean, Obamacare. Republicans had 50, uh, 60 vote majority. They couldn't get rid of it. Social Security didn't get rid of it. Medicare didn't get rid of it. And so it's like, I get the premise, right? But that doesn't necessarily work in practice in the way that they're conceiving it. Nevertheless. Well, because there's a lot of money to be made. Yes, by not getting stuff done. Behind closed doors. Yes. So. They want that Senate to be exactly like that. And people like Joe Manchin love this ability to be like, yeah, I'm not going to do it. And basically kill it. Meaning well, his is, powers. This, this is why, and we've been talking about this the last two hours all morning, is the the whole reason that these the supermajorities existed before and they could have codified Roe. Yes. A long time ago, 10 years ago and chose not to. They just didn't do it. Is because, it's not because, not necessarily, only because they're lazy. No, but, vulnerability. But they need a good talking point. Yep. They, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle they purport to be on. They get money from a lot of similar sources, folks. Yeah. So if you're under the illusion that 
okay, just because you're AOC, you get money from person A. And and here is Mitch McConnell. That Mitch McConnell also isn't getting paid by person A? Oh, yes, he is. He may be. Yeah, he may right. be. Sometimes you give money to both in order to sort of have Ask, access to you're both. You're hedging your bet. That's right. Because you want to make sure you have influence. No matter if you're a person A or business A, corporation A, you feed both sides. Yes. Because you want to ensure that you have influence. Exactly. And, you know, so, it's, it's like you pick up the phone when the person gives you a ton of money. Right. That was one of the other ones where the representative was like, yeah, you, if you give me a bunch of money, yeah, I'm going to show up. Or even the right. thing for Hillary um, emails where it was like you had all of these people from these various countries and everything else who wanted to yeah. basically be in contact with Hillary Clinton. So, no, I, I agree with you. I, big, but, big money doesn't care about the, the politics of D or R. No. Big money cares about influence and getting their way. Yes. They have an objective. And that's this it. guy helps it's us business. get an objective. It now, from, is business. From they the Democratic side. No political ideology. They don't care. From the Democratic side, though, they wanted Roe v. Wade to be vulnerable in order to use the Supreme Court as a weapon and as a club in order to force you to vote for them in lieu of other things. And now, playing politics with it, they've lost it. Right. Well, you know, you take it for granted for too long, Yeah, I guess my point is the anger needs to be at the Democratic Party. And when you make the point of being they're demoralized and stuff like that, they should be demoralized over that. That's a horrible loss. I mean, this is one of their pet objects that they are supposed to protect. And it's like you have a rabid group of Republicans that these Democrats have been completely and incapable of doing anything in order to push right. back on. Just remember, y'all voted them in there. That's right. You chose those people. That's right. And I, I didn't know. vote for Biden because I didn't believe that Biden was going to do anything that Biden was saying on the campaign trail. He had been in politics for I'm 40 something years. I'm disillusioned by every. I don't, I don't trust any of them as far as I can throw them. Yeah. So, you know, but, you know, being a reporter and seeing stuff and some of the stuff. It makes you jaded. Yeah, you just can't, you can't unsee it, and you can't, sometimes I wish, it's it's like if you worked on a movie set, it's, after that, your, your movies are largely spoiled for you, and you really have to force yourself to, to suspend disbelief. Yeah. But I'm permanently on the other side, where it's like, I see something, and, and being a reporter for You've so long. You've been doing for 20 years. Yeah, it's just, I can't unsee it now. I just know BS Every time they move their lips, it yes. doesn't matter what side of the aisle they're on. It is BS every single time. And they turn around and put their hand out and somebody pays them. So just that's just how it works. I think people are starting to understand that. But still, people are knee jerk reactors and they, they just they react. They just react. And it's like, oh, my God, Roe might be overturned. Let's go Destroy Gucci on Rodeo. <laughs> what? Let's, let's hit a police car. What? Better do it. Like, wait, that that helps a poor black woman in Alabama that has gotten raped. Like, that helps her how? Helps get an abortion. By Burning like just in looting, looting Gucci. <laughs> Pretty much. Let's get to the headlines. But let's, yeah, let's get to the headlines. All right, national news here. The. You all remember this. The Delaware computer repairman who was the guy that came across the Hunter Biden laptop, the laptop from hell, as you know, has now filed a multi-million dollar defamation suit against a whole bunch of people. California Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff, CNN, The Daily Beast, and Politico. New York, New York Post is reporting that. I think a lot of people have been waiting for him who files some sort of a lawsuit because he has lost his entire livelihood after he went through the proper steps, the proper channels to report 
this laptop from hell, and then the full weight of the U.S. government stomped on this man's chest. His livelihood is gone. He's been under threat, death threats. He's been harassed. He had to shut down his business. Um, So now he's a former store owner, and he alerted the officials and the proper channels, and the story got squashed, and he was called, you know, Russian asset and all this other stuff. And this was fake, and now we know it's not. Uh, the CIA has also issued a detailed instruction. This is a separate story. <laughs> separate instructions to all their informants to secure the data transfers and make sure you don't get caught if you are a CIA snit. <laughs> they are advising you to use the Tor internet browser in particular which allows you to access the network anonymously. And they said, make sure you use a VPN, kids. Use a VPN out there. They say, quote, concerned Russians are trying to engage the CIA and we wanted to provide a way to safely contact us. So they advise you to use a VPN and tour. Uh, The instructions require informants to state their full name, the country they are reporting from, their official position, and to specify what access they have to secrets or U.S. intelligence. All that information is then thoroughly examined and verified, they say. Just like they did with the Hunter Biden laptop. Yes, I I trust them to (laughs) verify. Yes. They would never lie. No, they don't lie. The CIA, come on. Um, International news. Employers trade union uh, ports of Sweden now suing the port workers union over the blockade of Russian linked goods and ships, which they're calling illegal because the blockade imposed back on March 28th, the members of the port workers union say they no longer want to deal with Russian goods, Russian ships, Russian anything. They don't want to touch it. They don't want to offload them. So according to the doc. Workers' Union, the blockade is designed to show sympathy and solidarity with Ukraine. The employers, however, argue that the industrial action is illegal and are now taking those guys to court. Then Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has now issued a rebuttal against Israeli Foreign Minister Yair Lapid about, you know, that issue with the neo-Nazism and anti-Semitism Uh, that he's saying, let me correct the record, Mr. Lapid. He says this. We took note of the anti-historical statements of Israeli Foreign Minister Yair Lapid, which largely explained the course of the current Israeli government in supporting the neo-Nazi regime in Kiev, the foreign ministry wrote in a statement on, aptly called, on anti-Semitism. Makes sense. The Chinese aircraft carrier Liaoning has led a battle group into the Western Pacific Ocean for, quote, open sea combat training, according to senior captain Gao Xusheng. He's a spokesperson for PLAN, People's Liberation Army Navy. Gao says the drills are a routine training exercise within the annual work plan of PLAN and designed to improve the aircraft carrier battle group's ability to fulfill missions. So he says... This is just practice. Don't freak out. We're not invading, I assume, Taiwan is probably what's on people's minds. In tech news, researchers at Carnegie Mellon have managed to modify a VR headset so it can allow the user to experience the sensations of touch in 
in and around the mouth. That's according to Gizmodo. The team from the university, yeah, in your mouth, in. Yes. In Suboka. Yes. They used to be a restaurant in, named that. In, in Suboka. Suboka. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's like, oh, that's so dirty. In, in your mouth. Yeah. In your mouth. The team from the university's <laughs> future interfaces group apparently managed to achieve this feat without adding hardware that actually makes contact with the person's face to the set. They're using ultrasonic tran- transducers attached to it, this modified s- headset. So it's now capable of creating a, a sense of touch on your lips, as well as the user's teeth and tongue, if your mouth is open. So I guess you're wearing the headset, yeah. right? And your mouth is like uh, a gape, just, I don't know, like at the dentist. I think people need to realize how profound that is. I mean, the moment that you get to the point where you can say, okay, this is the configuration of waves that we need in order to create X or Y. Yes. I mean, that's astonishing. You could be watching movies, for example, and you will be able to smell something right. based apart, on the electronic... Apart, apart from the porn thoughts that people are thinking, right. apart from that, there, this is like, yes, yeah, scientifically is like a, a major breakthrough oh, yes. for folks that that are, you know, let's say quadriplegics or people that have had strokes and are losing sensation in certain parts of the body. So if you take away the porn element... Well, I wasn't even thinking of a porn element. I, I was definitely... And the mouth thing, right, is, is pretty suggestive. But, uh, no, I was thinking of it more in terms of... There, there's VR porn. That's why... Oh, there is. Oh, yeah. that's It's a big thing. That's why adding the sense of touch to the world of VR, my brain instantly went, oh, my God. Yeah. Once... Carnegie Mellon sells this to like the manufacturers. That's where it's going. This, I mean, yeah. I'm just saying there are other more profound things. The holodeck can be used for porn or the holodeck can be used for experiencing these other, like you're watching a movie and you can feel it, um, the wind hitting your face. So you can touch or whatever. No, that's profound. You go to Disney's California Adventure, that ride. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. There's a ride there where, where, yeah, they spray when you're, riding, quote-unquote, over the orange fields or something, you you get a whiff of orange. Oh, I see. And you're, yeah, and, and the seats kind of sway. You're not really, it's not like a roller coaster, but the seats kind of move you around, and you get the sensation that you are flying through scenes of California. You can easily see how that will be incorporated. Right, into how this, a, yeah. yes. So now it's like kind of something like that, but on a VR headset, which would be really groundbreaking for people that cannot experience these things. So Outside of the porn thing, ton of money to be made there. You all know that. You know there's a ton of money in porn. Then in Earth Science News, the expansion of the universe first discovered back in 1998 to be speeding up, driven by dark energy, exerting repulsive pressure, rather like the opposite of gravity, could soon grind to a standstill. That's according to this new research. So new research always trumps the old research, I guess, or they'll debate it. They say that the universe could begin to shrink, prompting stars, galaxies, and planets to collide. Eventually, the cosmos could collapse upon itself in a big crunch, so opposite of Big Bang. This is according to the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, so it's a pretty official publication. The process could happen, they say, remarkably quickly, but when they say remarkably quickly, they mean 65 million years. So you're not going to be around for the big crunch, folks. Don't worry. After that, within 100 million years, they say the contraction could then result in the death of time and space, which I would argue time doesn't really exist anyway. It's a man-made concept. Concept. But all right, sure. For the argument, death of time and space, and then potentially another big bang. Let's stop right there because we have Richard Wolf with us. 
Oh, um, Professor Wolf is yeah. here. So let's do this. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. And we have the one and only Professor Wolf when we come back. Fault Lines, Thomas, Chan, coming back with the one and only Professor Wolf. Again, one of my favorite, favorite people. Helps inform a workable point of view. We'll be back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around to Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so by phone, chat, by chat or by phone, 202-521-1320. We'll be taking your calls at 945. But let's get to our guests. We are rate waiting today for Fed rate hike. Now, this is coming in context to inflation that is at a 40-year high, that a recession fear that is looming. I would say we're probably already there at this point, considering the 1.4% um, drop. But we need to have a conversation about what this means, not just for us, but for the rest of the world, not to mention issues associated with China and Taiwan and what effect that may have. To have a conversation about this, we're joined with the one and only Professor Wolf. Professor Wolf is a professor, professor of economics emeritus, University of Massachusetts, Amherst, and a visiting professor at the Graduate Program for International Affairs in the New School University, New York City. He's founder of Democracy at Work and host of the nationally syndicated show, Economic Update. One of my favorite. Love that show. His latest book, The System is the Sickness, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, and is available with the other books, Understanding Socialism and Understanding Marxism. Professor Wolf, thank you for joining us, my man. Great to talk to you. How are you doing this morning? Very well, and thank you very much. I enjoy talking with you as well. Oh, thank you. So I wanted to get to the rate hike. So at 2 p.m., the Fed is expected to increase I think it was one half basis point. Um, this was something that they basically haven't done in 20 years, if I'm not expected, if I'm not mistaken. A quarter, I'm sorry, quarter percentage point. What, I mean, is the quarter percentage point enough considering the rate of inflation and the speed at which the inflation seems to be going? And what does this mean for just the economy in general that they're doing this? Well, we should also note that the Fed warned us that that we would see somewhere between five and seven hikes yes. this year. Yeah. So, That's scary. So what does that mean, Professor, that they're doing this? You've asked me several questions. Let me try to quickly respond. There's no way on earth that a quarter percent increase is going to solve the problem of an inflation now running, and this is a conservative estimate, at 8.5% per year. Uh, so there's no question they're going to have to raise interest rates way more, way more than a quarter of a percent. Uh, this year, if they're going to use this method of trying to stop uh, an inflation or at least to slow it down. Let me be real clear. This inflation is a very dangerous economic phenomenon. Think of it like a, a, a storm heading your way, getting worse, <clears throat> and you're really now scared because of all the damage you can see it does. Just to give you an idea, We've, we're a people, we the American people, who have just gone through arguably the two worst years in this country's history. At the same time, we had the worst public health 
failure and disaster in our history, and at the same time, the second worst economic crash, uh, second only to the Great Depression of the 1930s, and we had them both at the same time in the years 2020 and 2021. That is a body blow. And then to have us come out of that, if indeed we're out, that's not 100% sure yet, and to be whacked with an inflation, you are putting the working class of this country, white and black, male and female, under a set of pressures that have a lot to do with explaining the anger, the bitterness, the violence that is shaping our politics. These things go together like this uh, and have done that many times uh, in the past. If you then cap it off, uh, as you said correctly at the beginning of this segment, that there may be a recession by the end of the year as a consequence of raising the interest rates to fight the inflation, well, then you're going to be punching uh, the working class yet again. And, you know, at a certain point, that blows up on an economic system, and we are marching in that direction. Number two, let's be real clear. Pardon me if I put on my hat as an economics professor. Please do. Raising interest rates is not the only way to stop or slow an inflation. The fact that our government, from the Fed on to Mr. Biden, on to the Republicans, the fact that that's all they could talk about should already make you suspicious that there must be something they're not talking about because they're spending so much time on this. So let me give you an example, not a fanciful hypothetical, but an actual example. The last time we had runaway inflation was back in the early 1970s. And at that time, the president of the United States was a conservative Republican named Richard M. Nixon. And he got on the radio and television August 15th, 1971, and he said, this is a dangerous inflation we got. It is making people unable to afford food, clothing, and shelter. It is making American goods so expensive that we can't sell them in the rest of the world, causing our economic balance with the rest of the world to get out of whack. We've got to do something. So I'm going to do the following, said the conservative Republican. As of tomorrow morning, there will be in the United States a wage price freeze. That's what he called it. And that's what it's called in the literature because it happens in other countries all the time. And here's what the way it works. As of tomorrow morning, the president of our country told us, if you raise your price as a seller of anything, or if you raise your wage as a worker, we will arrest you and put you in jail. So I, my advice to you is don't give us a reason to do that. Guess what? The inflation stopped on the literal dime. <laughs> the, the only thing I want to bring up here is an honest country willing to face its own problems would at the very least be debating the strengths and weaknesses of that approach against the strength and weaknesses of raising interest rates. Because make no mistake, what raising interest rates does is put buying that house on a mortgage 
out of the reach of millions more of Americans. Making those monthly payments for your car become more expensive with higher interest rates. So does carrying the balance on your credit card. So does getting your kid a college loan. You are really hurting the people who can afford it least as the remarkable only way we discuss how to deal with this inflation. Now, Professor, how do we know when we've left inflation alone and we've actually moved into the stage of stagflation? We're in it. That's what statistic that came out last week, that over the first quarter of 2022, that is the months of January, February, March, just now behind us, during that period of time, the total output of goods and services in the United States, what we call the GDP, dropped by 1.4%. Given the size of our GDP, that was a drop in the value of output of 250 billion, that's with a B, billion dollars. That's a stagnating economy. It's actually worse. Stagnation kind of means you're where you are, but you can't get ahead. We did not only not get ahead, we didn't stay where we were. We shrank as an economic system. So we're in stagflation. When you have that kind of a drop in output while your prices are raising ahead, in a way, you have the worst of all possible worlds. And that's why raising interest rates is, at least for many people around the world, raising eyebrows too. You know why? Because an economy that's already shrinking is only going to shrink more if interest rate rises lead people to be unable to afford stuff, because if they can't afford it with a higher interest rate, then workers are going to get laid off since no employer will hire a worker to produce something that the employer can't sell. Let's dig into the details just for a bit, just for people who may not know. Why does increasing interest rates lower or stop or slow down inflation? Does it have to do with basically creating a situation where people borrow less? And because they borrow less, they have less money in order to put into the economy, which the idea being it slows down the economy. Is that the thought behind it? You got it. You get your A in the economics course. That's exactly how it, the idea is that you make less money available to your economy, partly because people uh, will borrow less. The idea is because you've made it more expensive to borrow. So they'll borrow less, which means, you know, literally they'll have less money in their wallet as they go into the store and they'll end up buying less. And the idea is this sends a message to the producer, the capitalist corporation, uh, be very careful, capitalist corporation. People don't have the money in their pocket to pay. If you keep raising prices, you're basically destroying your the demand for your product. So that's kind of stupid. You're hoping to make more profits by raising your price, but you get surprised because at the higher price, fewer people will buy it because the money is becoming tighter, more expensive. That's the idea. Doesn't, by the way, necessarily work. Corporations may decide we make more extra profit uh, when the price goes up than we lose in the poor people who can't afford it. And the minute that situation happens, then you can see where the stagflation comes in because the prices keep going up because the corporations are saying to themselves and the numbers show it, we can be more profitable producing high price goods 
for a smaller number of people than producing lower price goods for a larger number. Since people, since capitalism is not a system that organizes production for what people need, but is rather a system that organizes production for what people can buy, you can see how we could get a situation, we're already in it, where prices go up, even though it means for masses of people that they're really squeezed. I mean, we're now talking, uh, if you focus, for example, on food, the food price inflation is greater than the average for everything else. So one of the things really being pinched, both here in the United States and globally, is the price of food. And you're, me, you're saying to poor people, uh, it's over for the hamburger. You're now moved over to hamburger helper. And if prices keep going up, you won't be able to afford that either. Uh, this is happening and it's going to have long-term health effects on our people. It's going to aggravate and disturb our political system. I mean, we are doing things in an economy. The, the metaphor I would use, think of a, a roller coaster that is now wobbling and you're sitting in it and you're beginning to wonder whether this is the way it's supposed to wobble or it is literally about to go off the rails. Yikes, that's an ominous thought. Uh, Professor, I want to switch gears a little bit to the issue with student loans. The Biden administration, we know, keeps kicking this idea around. And, and I don't know if it's just, you know, putting the carrot out there ahead of 2022. But my question is, is going to be two parts on this. Uh, the CFPB is getting numerous complaints of borrowers, borrowers um, saying that, you know, companies that promised to help them with student loan debt forgiveness or forbearance or whatever, uh, that the fees are beginning to mount up. And, you know, so one part is, has Biden in his first year even addressed the things that Donald Trump did to the CFPB, tearing it apart and basically making it, you know, anti-consumer rather than helping the consumer. Has he touched that, number one? And number two, what about these student loans? They keep talking about student loan debt forgiveness um, up to a certain, you know, they're weighing these different options of like, okay, the cutoff is what? When, a, when an adult uh, loan payer is, you know, earning over 100, 150, something like that. They're kicking these ideas around that there's going to be a cap on people's earnings. And then everyone else that falls below that, they're considering complete loan forgiveness. Where do you think we are at in that conversation? And do you think it'll ever really come to fruition? The money that I talk to is betting on the first thing that you said. In other words, that this is like the stretched out a uh, committee looking into the riot in the Capitol at the beginning, that everything is being carefully orchestrated to kind of explode um, in the summer or the very early autumn uh, in time to hopefully sway an election that the Democrats, for very good reason, are very fearful of losing. Uh, I'm not a political specialist. I don't know if they're doing that. I certainly wouldn't put it past them. But I would rather go and, and, and look at the economics uh, of the situation. So let's begin with the most important thing. Either you believe that your people, particularly your young people, 
should have the opportunity to go to college if they have the desire and they can show the ability to do that kind of work. Here's what we know as economists. The future of the United States in a world economy depends more than on anything else on the quality and the quantity of the educated labor force more than ever. So if we want a good future for the United States, we better provide the educational uh, opportunities that our people need and want. And that means, and this is done in most other developed countries, you provide education as a public resource. In other words, you say to people, let me give you an example, Germany, the most important economy in Europe. If you go to the university in Germany, you go for free. There is no student loan program because they don't need it. They don't charge anything. The graduate programs of undergraduate and graduate school are considered to be part of the education system, just like high school, just like elementary school in this country. Free, available, you should go if you can at all uh, cope with it because we need the benefit of you being an educated person. If this country worked in a fair and appropriate way, it would say that to its people, and we wouldn't be in this crazy situation of telling students on the one hand, we're not going to give you and your family enough money to afford it, and on the other hand, we're going to let university prices go up and up and up. They've been rising faster than inflation, which of course puts most families in an impossible situation. They don't earn enough to pay what the university costs. The government could solve that problem here the way it has. By the way, Germany is not the only country in Europe. There are at least seven or eight others that work exactly uh, in the same way. The Russians do that too. Yeah, we, we should do that. I mean, it's outrageous. Having said that, we have now loaded up debt. We are driving literally millions of young people to not go to college because they can't justify uh, beginning life with the overhang of that kind of debt. Who could blame them? I mean, th- this is this is a society that is shooting itself in the foot by this behavior. Now, why is it doing that? Well, here's the answer. We have been squeezing our working class, as I mentioned earlier. We have a working class that is up to its eyeballs in debt. Mortgage debt for your home automobile debt for the car without which you really can't live in our society because we don't produce a mass transit education, uh, excuse me, uh, transportation. And then finally, credit card debt. Uh, It's too much. And here comes the problem. If you relieve the students, you're going to have bitterness, envy, and really perfectly reasonable questions from people who are drowning in credit card debt or mortgage debt or car debt. I mean, the students need it, no question. Everybody will agree, but so do a lot of other people. And now the question becomes the fear of the bankers and the lenders, that if the government opens that can of worms by helping one group of Uh, borrowers, in this case, students, you're going to develop a movement that demands 
relief across the board. And at that point, the lenders freak out. Those are the biggest banks and, and insurance companies and so on in the country. And they're the ones who own the politicians, as we all know. And therefore, even someone who made a promise when he was running, Mr. Biden, suddenly discovers that the lobbyists down the hall and the editorials in the, in the expensive newspapers are all telling him not to do it. And that wealthy, influential businesses and rich people are going to be interested in funding his opponent in these elections, not him, if he opens the door to a place they don't want to see anyone go. I mean, the rub is if he doesn't open that door, he's going to lose anyway. And I agree with you a thousand percent on this. I bet you that's exactly the conversations that happen deep into the night in that White House as it tries to figure out what to do. thousand percent agree. And I completely agree with you. I am sitting here applauding you on the student loan thing. All things being equal, as a society itself, you should want your populace to be an educated society and you should want that to be available. I mean, and it's very weird to me that we create a contradiction in the sense of, yes, we want people to get educated, but we're going to make it radically expensive for them to do so. It is utterly bizarre. By the way, let me, if I could just add one thing, because it usually blows people's mind. In Germany, a country that, you know, that I follow because I want to be up to date on what's going on in Europe. It, it's a bigger economy than the American, the, if you put all of Europe together. And the key part is Germany. In Germany, not only is it education free, undergraduate and graduate, but it's free for everyone. Let me underscore that. You don't have to be German. You don't have to be a German citizen. Anyone listening to this program here in the United States who wants a free education can go to Germany and get it. And by the way, roughly 25,000 Americans have done exactly that because they don't have any fees to pay. The Germans are so confident that they can not only educate people, but that a good number of them will either stay in Germany, which is happening, or feel a kind of, how shall I put it, loyalty or appreciation for the Germans having given them an education that either they would never have gotten or could only have gotten in the United States by loading up with a crushing level of debt that prevents them from getting married or having children or getting a home or any of the other things uh, they had hoped for in their lives. Well, Professor, what do you say to the people, though, that would push against that and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I don't want these kids going to school for free to learn, I don't know, underwater basket weaving (laughs) or, you know, like gender studies or what have you. What if what if some people have a caveat to that belief and say America needs more engineers, we need more doctors, we need more scientists, we need more economists, we need fewer people studying sociology or art history or, you know, theater. What do you say to those people? Here's what I say to them. Two things. Number one, if you don't do what you love to do, I've been a professor all my life. I've sat in my office at the university all my life talking to students, not just about what we're doing in the courses, but about their lives and their decisions and their futures. They ask my advice often, and I give it. and, And here's what I say. I say to them, the most important thing for you and for the society is that when you go to college, try different things. 
you're a young person. You don't really know what you love altogether yet. You don't know what you're really good at yet. Try. You may be good at something and then take a course in another area and discover it's the love of your life. And But we know the following. It's important to you to be happy and to the society to be benefited from this, that you do what you love. Don't be an engineer because someone tells you this is a good idea. There are jobs in the future. You won't be good at that if it's not what you love. You just won't. There's loads of unhappy people around you are doing things they wish they didn't do because they really love music or they really love art. We are a rich country. We can afford to get the best out of our young people by giving them an education that really allows them to find out what they're good at, what love, what, what they love, what gives them the satisfaction that makes them be creative uh, on the job. But here's a more important answer. I hear, well, I don't like this or that about what that college is doing. Or here's the other one that, that really gets me angry. I don't want to give a loan forgiveness to somebody. Yeah, they have a debt, but their family is uh, comfortable. Their family is rich. I don't want to help somebody, here we go, who doesn't deserve it. I want to remind those people, a very few years ago, when Donald Trump was president in December of 2017, a tax cut was passed in this country, the biggest in history, favoring, you know who? The richest and the biggest corporations. And no one, no Republican and no Democrat that I'm aware of, ever said, oh, we shouldn't be cutting the taxes on everybody. Here's a bunch of companies that are doing stuff I don't like. Let's say polluting the water. They shouldn't get a tax cut because we don't want to stimulate people who are doing something that isn't good. Or we don't want to give a tax break to a company that's roaring uh, in its profits. It doesn't need it. All this question of need never came up when there was the issue of giving tax breaks to corporations and the rich. But when we're talking about students in debt, or for that matter, many other social programs, you know what we get? We get all this discussion of need. Uh, I don't mind if we're going to use need. It's okay with me. But then let's not be hypocrites. Let's use the need criterion for the big handouts to the corporations, not just in the social programs for the average person. I absolutely agree. I mean, and even Bush tax cuts, Obama solidified those into law. I think it was like 88% of those. And then you end up with Trump with another massive tax cut. Nobody ever asks, hey, do people need this? That never comes up. That's right. That's right. You know, I mean, uh, unbelievably, it, it ranks right up there with allowing in, in this pandemic, allowing in this pandemic, I'm going to give, give you just one example. One of the largest food processing companies in the world is an American company called Cargill. The Cargill family is already billionaires because they are, uh, have been so big for a long time. Now that the price of food is going up like crazy, the billionaires are bringing in more billionaires. Okay, this is the opposite of need. You're already a billionaire. The price of food is going crazy. That is plunging millions of people into hunger or having to substitute bad food, cheap food for healthy food. And those people suffering 
is offset and caused by billionaires becoming more billionaire than they already were. A system that works like that, it has lost my loyalty. And it is in the process of losing the loyalty of more and more people until we reach that tipping point. And this system will have discovered that like every other system before it, it was born, it evolved over time, and then it died. Now, Professor, what of the people that say, you know what, university is just not for me? What of the state of trade schools in this country? Because when, you know, in, in the, the mid-century, mid-20th century, that was a popular thing. Even in high school, you could learn, you know, a, a, a trade, even in high school. So when you get out, you can be a mechanic, you can be, you know, some sort of uh, ceramics craftsman, uh, make glass, things like that. You can do things with your hands because not every kid wants to go to college. We don't even supply those people with a means and a way to go to a trade school. And th th those schools are limited. Yeah, but you know, that too is a product of the way our capitalist system has evolved. I don't mean to be mean-spirited, but in many ways, a large number of what we call community colleges in this country, they really are trade schools in the sense that they are the trade school for the white collar worker who's going to be sitting in a cubicle in some large corporation processing papers of one kind or another, working with a computer. They have to be computer literate and all the rest. One of the reasons we don't have the, the trade schools that you're talking about is that those jobs are now in China or India or Brazil or somewhere else. They have all the schooling because they're producing that kind of worker. And by the way, that didn't happen because the sun was shining. That was because the corporations did not want to pay the wages that people who work with their hands had been able to achieve mainly through unionization. So their wages were reasonably high. And in this crazy capitalist system, the higher the wage the worker wins, the greater the incentive for the employer to go somewhere else to pay another worker much, much less. And we did that on a national basis. We were successful in building a good standard of living for the workers in the Detroit auto factories or the town I was born, Youngstown, Ohio, where the steel factories were. All those jobs were moved out of the country in order to make more profits for the American companies because they could pay Chinese workers a small fraction of what they paid in Ohio or in Michigan. And the end result is who needs to, uh, trade schools to teach people to be uh, mechanics when the automobile is a throwaway object? Everything is made in another country. And when you something goes wrong in your car, you take out the part, you put in a new one, the old one and the new one made in China, et cetera, et cetera. The new thing we need for service workers is what we do in community colleges. We really have the trade school, but the trade for which we train people has changed. And so that's why we have reorganized it um, to make people feel good about what was not such a good event. We call it a college instead of a trade school but the name doesn't change the reality. Wow, very interesting. I'm glad you brought up China. And so 
China, just read it. The Chinese government held an internal conference with officials with foreign and local banks as the nation seeks to protect its overseas assets from U.S. sanctions, potential military action with Taiwan. Now, this gets into the whole Ukraine thing where basically provocation, Russia gets involved into war, economic warfare from the standpoint of the West. Well, there's a similar situation taking place with Taiwan where if a provocation takes place there, what happens? And we're seeing this kind of separation or decoupling from the Russian economy with the West, and it's causing all sorts of economic havoc. But what does it mean from the standpoint of China working with its banks in order to try to protect itself from having either its assets stolen in one case or what it would do from, let's say, a freeze from the SWIFT system or the kind of economic system being locked out? What is the reality of this from the standpoint of China? And what would it mean if China had this kind of decoupling from the West like that? In some ways, China is typical of what is happening around the world. And then in some ways, China is unique because it it is a an enormously important um, uh, factor in the world economy now in a way it never was uh, for centuries. Anyway, so l- let me talk about the first one and then the other. What the United States did in, in going to economic war against Russia, and that's what's going on. Russia invades Ukraine. That's a military war. The United States mobilizes a good part of Western Europe and declares economic war, not military war yet, uh, against Russia. Uh, and in the course of that war, the United States government freezes or takes the wealth owned by Russia as a country, and now increasingly wealth owned by individual Russians, and deprives them of their private property. The United States was, until this, considered the place where private property was the most safe, the most respected. There is talk of seizing property owned by Russians, such as Uh, apartments in New York City or land around the United States. That exists, by the way. What this means is that every rich person, every corporation in the world, every other government has to think in a new way about investing in the United States, owning anything in the United States. Why? Because if you run afoul of the American government, you can lose your private property. And what this means, and Americans better get ready, is that you're going to see slowly but steadily the end of the wonderful time the United States has had as wealthy businessmen and women, rich corporations, and whole countries put their money in a bank in New York, invested in apartments, in land, in stocks here in the United States, all of which helped our economy. That ain't going to happen the way it did in the past because we have let the world know we can get so upset that we will take your property. Russia didn't do anything to the United States. It did something to Ukraine. And we don't like it. I get that. But that's a long extra step. And it's going to cost us in this country in ways nobody's talking about. And by the way, the rest of the world understands 
This year, it's Democrats, and they hate Russia. Next year, it may be Republicans, and they prefer to hate on China. Remember, Mr. Trump declared a trade war against China, not Russia. Mr. Biden declared an uh, economic war against Russia, not China. I mean, it, it, it's bizarre, it's unstable, and it is going to cost us, number one. Number two, it's very important to understand that about 500 companies, maybe half American, the other half Western European, have pulled out of Russia because of the pressure of the U.S. government, closed down their operations, stopped selling whatever they were selling, closed their offices, their factories, their stores. That is a, a way of hurting Russia. But it ain't hurting Russia anywhere near the make-believe of the American press. And the reason for that is very simple. Chinese companies, Indian companies, Brazilian companies, and I could go on for half an hour. They're all rushing in because for them, this is a great opportunity. The American company leaving, fine. In comes the Chinese company saying, we'll rent that building where they had their offices. We'll take over that factory that they don't want anymore. Not, not to mention, not to mention, Professor, those, the Asian countries are now getting Russian oil on sale. Right. And by the way, don't make, it's like many sales. It's a sale in terms of what the world price is now. But the world price of oil now is way higher. You know, it's like that hustle stores do. Uh, they tell you, we'll, get, you, we'll give you 20% off of everything they in the store. They mark it up. Right. <laughs> yeah, what you don't know is the night before the sale began, every, everything was marked up by 30%. You feel great that you're getting 20% off. The store feels great, get 10% more than it would have gotten before the so-called sale. The Russians are in this peculiar situation, which again, Americans are not expl never explained. The Russians are in this situation that when they went and crossed the border into Ukraine, they drove up the price of oil enormously and gas. Uh, as Americans know, look what we're paying for, for, for fill up our car at the corner gas station. And this money is rolling into Russia, this higher price of oil and gas, because Russia is one of the world's greatest exporters of oil and gas. Here's the irony. The rise in the price of oil and gas has delivered more increased wealth to Russia than the cost of their war in Ukraine so far has been. Wow. In other words, they are in the bizarre situation of conducting a war that pays for itself. They made a profit? You have, you have to understand that. Otherwise, you will not understand what's going on. And now the last thing. China is the second, either the, it, 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 China and Japan uh, fight for first and second place as the largest creditors of the United States. Americans have to understand, again, they don't, but they should, that the United States is the world's largest debtor country. No other country comes close to owing the rest of the world the amount of money we as a nation owe. We have been borrowing from people outside the United States, from governments outside, in a way no other country ever did, okay? 
Russia, uh, China and Japan are the two major lenders to the United States. China alone owns over a trillion, that's with a T, over a trillion dollars worth of what are called U.S. Treasury securities. It's the piece of paper you get if you lend money to Uncle Sam, okay? Everybody who lends to Uncle Sam is paid an interest. You have to pay interest when you borrow money. The United States government pays interest to whoever owns the debt of the United States. That means that the United States government collects from all of us, you and me, taxes. Taxes on alcohol, taxes on gasoline, taxes on our income, tax, you know, all of our taxes. And it takes a portion of that, that tax money and uses it to pay the interest it owes to the creditors of the United States, which means, and I want you all to listen and enjoy this, that you and I are paying a portion of our taxes that the government simply collects and sends to China. That's right. It sends it to the People's Republic of China, which is free to use that money for whatever it wants, building up its military, helping the Russians in Ukraine. That's their business. They get it. We pay it. They get it. And the reason you didn't know that, if you didn't, and I'm not going to embarrass anyone, but the reason you didn't know it is it's too hard to square the realities of the American capitalist system's difficulties with the hoopla and the propaganda that we live in. And there's no nice way to say it, but we're in a, a system that is in deep trouble globally and in deep trouble at home. That's what it means that we're already in stagflation. We have enormous economic and political problems, and we're pretending that everything is just ducky fine. Yeah. And that's not a reasonable way to deal with anybody's problems. We all know that in our personal lives, yep. I'm hoping that as a nation, we will become mature enough to recognize we got to stop playing and actually confront the realities that are around us at every turn. Professor, love it. Absolutely love it. we got to close, but Professor Wolf is a professor of economics emeritus, University of Massachusetts Amherst, and visiting professor at the Graduate Program of International Affairs. Please check out his books and please check out his website, Democracy at Work. Thank all of you. We want to thank our engineers, producer. I want to thank Manila Chan. All our rumblers out there. All our you, rumblers in the audience. May the fourth be with you. Have a great day, guys. We'll see you in the morning. Fault lines.